Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Chris Harrington, joined, as always, with my co-host, Mr. Brandon Thurston Howard. Brandon, how are you today? I'm good, Mookie. How are you? I'm good. Is Brandon Howard Thurston or Brandon Thurston Howard? Howard Thurston is the full, legit name. Oh, geez. Yeah. That's the shoot name? Yeah, yeah, that's on the birth certificate. And on the wrestling uh, license? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I, I would hope so. How has your week been? Have you uh, taken home any winner's purses? Not not, not this week, but maybe tomorrow as, as we record this. T- tomorrow, uh, Saturday afternoon, I'll be going to Fr- Frewsburg, New York. Have you ever heard of that? Frewsburg, New Frewsburg. York? No, I've not. It's like near Jamestown, New York, if you know where that is. It's it's probably like some wrestling fair show. For Southern Tier Wrestling, I'll be wrestling Vince Valor of, of Niagara Falls, New York. Oh, my. Is he an so American or Canadian? Oh, oh, Niagara Falls, New York. He's an American, yeah. Oh, okay. There's so many there's so many Canadians from that area that were coming down for so long, and yeah. they all made it big. So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard to come over uh, – it's true. All the Americans were going to Canada more than the kids were coming to the U.S. Right. Right. So it's legal to go into Canada as an American now. I remember back in the day, people used to say, "Oh, you got to tell them you're going for a wrestling training seminar," and then then they're like, "Okay, as long as you're not getting paid." But now I I've heard, and I don't know how true this is, but that Vince McMahon, you know, WWE got in this uh, entertainers law in Canada so that any American can cross into Canada without a work visa and and work. And I do this all well. I don't know about all the time, but on occasion when I do wrestle in Canada. I you know I go through the border and they ask me where I'm going. I tell them I'm going to get going to wrestle, and they ask me if I'm going to get paid. I say yes, and they're like, okay, have a nice day. That's it. Really? Wow, I am surprised to hear this because uh, in my shoot job, I work for an American company, but I service our Canadian subsidiary, so I travel to Canada quite a lot. And whenever I go, I do get interrogated about what kind of work I'm doing in Canada. And uh, I've gone as far as to get my global entry and uh, working on my Nexus right now so I can go back and forth without any trials and tribulations whatsoever. So uh, if you do find yourself getting cut off, eventually you can just smuggle in in the trunk of my car where I'll be able to go through the easy pass lane. You should try to get your company into the uh, entertainment business or something. You know, I think if I'm able to show my presentations as entertainment and say that these numbers are for entertainment purposes only, then maybe I won't be held accountable oh. for Missing our go. targets, you know. There you go. It works for Vince, so I'll use not? Yeah, I'll use WWE numbers, so I'll just report the ones that I like, and the ones that I don't, I'll just, you know, 
just kind of insist that it's all all the rest of our sales are on the internet right now, and and someday they'll come to become revenue for us. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, I'm sounding much better than I was last week, where it sounded like I was talking to you through uh through you know locking myself in a closet. Hopefully, I sound much better today. We yes, have, we uh, we've invested in the today's <laughs> WrestleNomics Radio is brought to you by uh, as always Dr. Dip on YouTube, uh, who just got his mystery box of barbecue sauces, but also by Blue Yeti microphones and noxed audio uh windscreens the finest mm. microphones of any non-serious podcast about wrestlenomics mm-hmm. and who would listen to a, a show about wrestling numbers who i would feel, actually i i feel terrible because I, I didn't really try to throw this guy under the bus well you censored his, his name i did that, so i no did one, no one knows. you can find this review just by going to facebook and searching for the word wrestlenomics and oh, really? and like just looking for old posts and so this guy wrote a post about two years ago saying he was listening to wrestling. Oh, it's from two over. years ago. Oh, yeah, it was several years old. And he was just saying how basically I must have made some appearance on the show, and he could not for the life of him fathom how someone could listen to a wrestling uh, business podcast. Do people care that much about how much money WWE is making? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. I thought how all is that all... entertaining to anyone? I thought all in all of like an internet review of a podcast, I thought he was right on because like he basically just said, I think it would be boring. Don't get that. People would enjoy it. And I was like, you know what? Put in this cards where his money is. His mouth is. He, he was honest. He, he wasn't disrespectful. I was like, hey, I thought this was amusing. And so I, I, I ended up getting a lot of support and nice tweets from people. Uh, but I, I really wasn't fishing for compliments as much as I was just so <laughs> amused by this, you know. Uh, sometimes you feel like you toil in obscurity in, in general, and so it's always funny to me that someone has a reaction, whether it's positive or negative, to the show. Now, I, I won't knock the guy. He seemed to know his stuff. So at least, you know, he, you came off smart. It was probably one of these motor mouth uh, sessions where, you know, Brian or Dave, or, or never Dave, but yeah, where Brian gives me, he's like, we got three minutes. Can you cover all of what's happened in WWE in the last two years' financial history? Yeah, when when I did it, uh, the last call with uh, Semper Vivi, it was, it was very fast-paced, which I guess... That's what happens when you're on like a real show with a real time slot. So, yeah, it's 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 always funny when I do that because I always get so nervous when I'm in those situations compared to when I'm doing my podcast and it's it's much more laid back, uh, yeah. just because it's it's intense sometimes. Yeah, and you're on you know Wrestling Observer Live, the most listened to show or whatever it is. <laughs> yes, in the the known universe. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm realizing now we're going to go like 20 minutes here before we ever get any subjects and I lose all our, <laughs> our listeners. Um, yeah, you, you, and you're asking me earlier about how, how long you want to go here. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And I just start us off by saying, yeah, tell me about your childhood. Yeah. Um, no, the challenge this week is, of course, Mr. Berrios uh, did do a presentation, but he didn't put it up on the web anywhere. So we didn't get a chance to see. I think it was the Guggenheim he did. That's news to Summit. me. Yeah. yeah. See, you know, as the official Barrios tracker, I'm I'm kind of worried one of these days I'm going to get like a cease and desist letter or something. But uh, no, they they announced it a couple weeks ago, and I'm sure he just gave his normal spiel where he he runs through the presentation. But it wasn't broadcast in any way. So well, no you never way. know. He might have broken news again. He broke progress in ICW deals last time. That was funny, wasn't it? We were talking about how, you know, he just said, oh, you know, we announced this. And then everyone's like, no, you didn't. Nope. I mean, you'd have to be a fool not to put it all together with the, you know, who was there at those UK tournaments and what's been happening. But, yeah, you know, it's not true until uh, till it's all signed. And as far as we know, it might not even be signed because sometimes there's deals that happen that aren't really done deals. But, yeah, this week, uh, the big news was actually in last week's Observer, 
course, we tape bi-weekly, uh, but the Sports Business Journal study, Going Gray Sports TV Viewers Skew Older. Uh, and Dave really ripped into this article in terms of, uh, not ripped in as in anger, but ripped in as in went in deep and wide, talking about this on the show and, and following up with it in The Observer, and throwing a lot of numbers out there and questioning some numbers and kind of agreeing with other numbers. Can you give us just the top level, top line a summary of what this was saying in the article and then some of your thoughts, Brandon? Yeah, so this, this was in Sports Business Journal, and it was a, a study that they didn't do themselves, I guess, but they commissioned it from someone. And they go over what the study revealed in the article. <clears throat> um, so it, they have a list of just about any sport you can imagine. Even uh, I think you pointed out there's a horse, there's a horse racing, or there's some, some sort of weird horse. <laughs> horse sport. racing, and I can't believe that they're arguing that it doesn't skew three thousand years old. Because I do not <laughs> know anyone under the age of fifty who's ever watched a horse race beyond the Kentucky Derby. Right. So, so just about every sport you can imagine is included in this, uh, and they're studying well what's the median age of uh, of the viewers of these sports and pro wrestling in in that. In that description, pro wrestling is included. Now they don't tell you whether that whether pro wrestling includes WWE or whether that also includes Impact, Ring of Honor, Lucha Underground, New Japan, which are also pro wrestling promotions that are on national TV in the United States. And they don't so, tell you if they're force weighting it by the number of viewers, so you don't have an idea of whether is SmackDown and Raw being weighed weight equally, or is it you know three to two because of the number of millions of viewers? Is it like three thousand to two? compared to lucha underground and raw you know what what those comparisons are yeah sure you're the mathematician i didn't think of that so so what anyway what we find out is that pro wrestling's median age is aging faster than any other sport that there is and the only way uh, you can say that is that you have to then have a comparison time over time over time right so aren't they arguing that in 2000 they did the study and the median age was 28 and then in like 2006, they did the study, and it was 33, and now it's 2016, and the median age is 54 for pro wrestling? Yeah, it, it's almost like you have the notes right in front of you. Yes, uh, in 2000, the 28 to, to 33, and, and then in 2006 last year, 54. So that, that doesn't mean that pro wrestling's median age is the oldest, but it is aging over that period of time from 2000 to 2016. Uh, pro wrestling is aging faster than any other sport that they studied. So this would um, say in 2000 to 2006, it went up by about five years, and that was six years that right. passed. But then right. in the decade after that, instead of going up by 10 years, it went up by 21 years. So right. their point being that there must be attrition of the bottom of the audience or somehow magically the, the addition at the very top of the audience, more probably attrition and that uh, the median age is 54. And I know Dave pushes back on this a lot to say, eh, I think the median age is closer to 40-something. But it, it is worth comparing to say, you know, during the height of the Attitude Era, it was 28, and now you're talking about 40-year-olds. So let's just talk a little bit about WWE demographics in terms of what numbers we do have for them, which is, you know, WWE, since it's become a publicly traded company, puts out these investor decks... And in the mid-2000s, they started to really give us lots and lots of data points about, you know, who's watching our shows. And they would always claim this was Nielsen data. And the challenge with Nielsen data is that you can, at times, cherry-pick the information to represent the sort of viewership you want. So in this case, WWE likes to, for instance, count anyone who watches a few minutes of their programming as a WWE viewer so that they can then say that, you know, 10 million people or 12 million or 20 million people in the U.S. are watching their shows. 
And so there is going to be those challenges with that. But in general, what you see when you look at their demographics time over time over time is a similar trend. And I would say it's somewhat reflective of what I saw in the Sports Business Journal article um, when I looked at, you know, what percentage of the audience was over 35. Uh, over the years, you went from, you know, in the uh, the mid uh, 2000s, like 2005, where it's almost 50-50, and then now, uh, 10 years later, it's more like 60-40. So, again, we're not seeing the replenishment of people at the bottom of the television viewing age that makes it seem. And, of course, when WWE reports this, they say it's their viewers, and they're talking Nielsen, so I'm going to assume they're talking television, and they're not doing any kind of, you know, super advanced analytics where they're trying to somehow combine... Uh, online viewership with television viewership. But the fact that, you know, it's gone from a 50-50 thing to a 60-40 thing in 10 years says a lot about basically we're seeing the median age uh, continue to creep up. And for those of you who aren't sat majors, median is just you, you line up all the things from the top to the bottom and the median is the one right in the middle. It's a little different than the average because if you're highly skewed on the bottom or the top, your median and your average might be farther away from each other. But that's that's the difference here is a lot of times one thing will look at average age and one thing will look at median age and they're not always going to line up. And I know that's what Dave was also saying. One reason why maybe they're coming up with 50 something as the median age, whereas the average age is still about 40, 41, 42, which is essentially saying we took that attitude error viewer and then we aged him up 17 years. And so someone who was 20 that year is now 37 now. And that's almost exactly what I am. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of that demographic. And when I think of my friends, yeah, I do think of, you know, they are still the people that I know that watch wrestling. And when I when I meet new people and younger people, very few of them became new fans of wrestling in that time. They're, you know, more likely than not connected more to the Attitude Era, having gone away and maybe want to come back at some point rather than someone who was like, oh, yeah, I was a huge fan of that JBL run or something of that nature. Right. But when you watch Raw, when you when you do watch it... I... Do you watch you watch it via cable on the USA Network, right? Yeah, I have this thing yeah. called a cable box, and wow. I plug in channel 38, and USA Network comes up on my Xfinity cable, and uh, I watch it. And then sometimes, um, you know, and then I actually watch SmackDown probably more than I watch Raw, but yeah, same deal. I, and I, I have to watch it live. I don't have a DVR set up in any way to even do time delay viewing. Um, I watch almost everything else on cable through On Demand. And so very rarely do I actually watch it when it first airs, but rather I just wait till it's on on demand. But Raw is one of those few programs that you really can't do that with. Okay. So and you collected all this demographic data that was put in these investor presentations over the years, and I try to make graphs out of this because I I kind of have to see things visually sometimes. Um, and one thing I noticed, I, I drew this line in, in this graph that I've shared with you that the, the line where Raw becomes permanently three hours, which is as of July 23rd, 2012. And there seems to be a, a few months after that, there is a bump downward in, in terms of the audience getting older. Do you think that's yeah, meaningful? It's an interesting uh, thing. I think something we should probably tweet out after the show here to see if what people would respond yeah. to. Um, I think a little bit of it is that WWE doesn't update their statistics a lot. They tend to do them annually or even out. I'd even say biannually because I've caught them before using, you know, 2013 numbers in a 2015 presentation before. So a little bit might just be the timing of, you know, one time you're still using the 2014 numbers or the Q1 numbers, and then suddenly they jump to a full year number. Um, but I do think there's something to the fact that, you know, when you look at that graph, it's that 50 plus jumps from 
28% to 35% of the audience, and now it's all the way up to 38% of the audience. Whereas that uh, the youngest demographic, the people who are under the age of, let's say, uh, 34, goes from being 47% all the way down to now they're less than 41%. So is 6% a, a meaningful move in three, four years? It looks meaningful to me. I mean, it, it looks very much like it's following this. The problem is I don't have anything to pull it against in terms of the entire grain of the audience because, as we've discussed, there's so many people who essentially enter the bubble, which, you know, I, I would argue the youngest children aren't necessarily as susceptible to lack of cable because they're never paying for it. But once, you know, that it's that demographic from 18 to 29 where you have to decide whether your own expendable money is going to go towards uh, paying for cable. And I remember when I first decided to get my own apartment, one of my big decisions was, you know, am I going to go get cable? And I remember thinking, well, I want to host pay-per-view party, so I have to. Yeah. I, I hear a lot, this is just anecdotal evidence, but I hear a lot of people say, that, you know, of kids who actually watch WWE or, you know, engage with it in, in, in any way, that they can't really, and this is, this is Barrios as well, actually, that you can't really get them to watch traditional TV and that they're they're looking at the tablet or, or, or somebody's iPhone or whatever it is. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if kids are really, I know you're saying that when you're, you know, when you're really young, you've, you've, you've got access to cable because your parents are paying for it. If, if your parents, it. if your parents are older, of course, if you have millennial parents, you also run the risk that maybe they never have an interest in buying cable at all. <laughs> one of the highest percentages of people they found that had Netflix originally was, was mothers. And that was just because they discovered, oh, my gosh, what a great way for us to have programming for our kids. And there's no commercials. We can turn it on. It autoplays, you know. Yeah. And, and so they found that that was one of the highest demographics of people that had um, Netflix uh, back when they were really, you know, this was before the WWE Network launched. I remember finding these numbers and looking at those studies. So nowadays, the challenge with, like we say, with WWE or with uh, Netflix is that they're running out of upper class consumers to market towards. And so they're struggling to try to find who else they can sell Netflix to in the United States. And increasingly, then that means you have to find either cheaper packages or, you know, other models in order to, to kind of lure people in or different programming types. Uh, something very similar to what WWE Network is going to run into, but not in the sense that I think uh, they necessarily have as broad of a reach or broad as an audience or potential addressable audience for sure. What do you, what do you yeah. think about this? Let's go back to this YouTube discussion, though. So yeah. is your argument that wrestling is just as hot as it ever was, and it's just people watch it online to consume it, and we don't have a good way of measuring that consumption? I don't think it's as hot as it was in the year 2000, but I think it's probably about as hot as it was in the year, in the year 2006. I think my gut feeling is that fans have become – hardcore fans have become even more hardcore – but I don't see a lot of metrics that tell me wrestling has become less popular or that WWE's become less popular. And in fact, if you look at non-WWE wrestling, I think we're seeing non-WWE wrestling become even more popular here in, in the last couple of years. Um, and, and as far as like WWE's business philosophy on this, we heard uh, Michelle Wilson say on, on the Q1 call last time that you know, she said, we know YouTube is where the kids are discovering brands and we don't worry about is it cannibalizing our, our traditional TV viewership. Um so that that's their their thought on it, um, and and I think when when uh, when when Dave talks about this stuff and when others talk about it, I I think they're they're making some assumptions that you know, and what, what he was what he was saying in the Observer a couple of weeks ago is that you know YouTube and 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 uh, Hulu are they causing you know traditional TV viewership to decline rather than to maintain uh, 
TV viewership as consumers migrate away from from old media towards new media. And I think I think it's probably the latter. He's making it sound like because they're doing this big social media push and they're you know you know doing the Twitter scroll and then they're and they're putting their clips of their Raw and SmackDown shows on on YouTube. Is that causing people to stop watching Raw and SmackDown? I I, I don't know. I think maybe if they didn't have that stuff, then TV viewership would be declining anyway, just because of the way that people are engaging media these days, and because they offer that stuff, that there's a way to catch these people who would maybe otherwise would fall out of wrestling fandom. The the biggest challenge they have though is that you know the need to actually monetize that in some way because fandom is irrelevant if you can't monetize it in any way, right? Yeah, like yeah, and, and I don't and I agree. There's there's no great way to immediately monetize it there's youtube but we look at the digital media segment and it's not very profitable but like like i said i think i don't know if it was last year or the one before that i would rather uh engage people now and, and and maybe cannibalize my other thing and have you know young fans who become adult fans in 15 years rather than not engage people on 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 this new media and then end up in 15 years with not that many you know new adult fans because we didn't try to get these people on the on the forms of media that they use and you know any business case or investment case is going to have its pros and cons and it's it's SWOT analysis you have to do there about the strengths weaknesses opportunities and you know the how you're going to get the tactics to to get there but the challenge i find with it is that you know you could probably make a similar argument about WWE Studios 10 years ago and say look it's our new way of getting these people out in the entertainment sphere it's going to reach this new audience it's going to make them seem like bigger stars and i'd say no it's it's probably just been a money hole like the ROI on it's not been nearly enough to really justify it, and yeah. um, you know it, maybe it made John Cena a bigger star. You you could maybe argue that the Marine and whatnot helped kind of propel him into that next level of stratospheric stardom, but for the most part, it probably hasn't worked out. And so then you do have to look at the ROI a little bit and say, are these things going to be the right investment? And certainly, this is a better investment than uh, WWE Studios or WWE Films or or that sort of thing. Now, is this what what I don't have a good feel for is the stickiness of brand consumption on an internet platform versus any other thing that you're consuming. And that's always what I go back to, which is the idea of saying some people just consume things, but they don't necessarily become fans of them. And I'm not always sure whether or not we're getting fans if they're just casually consuming it in a very general way because again how do you how do you monetize things well you either get the eyeballs and then get someone to pay you for those eyeballs you get them to a show and then you get them to pay a lot of money for shows and that's what they've done a good job of in the most recent years here is really racking up the number of shows they run and the prices of the shows they've run and that also makes judging interest very difficult because in a sense and and I go back to this a lot when you look at the number of shows that they ran during the height of the attitude era they run so many more shows now. They run probably 50% more shows now. And so uh, you, you you would sacrifice some attendance if you were that hot, if you were that big, you know, because if you have such a limited quantity of something and you're selling it and then you double the quantity of it, you're, it's going to be able to push that price in a different direction. So I, I feel like sometimes it's really hard to actually evaluate what the consumption is of WWE domestically, specifically, um, internationally i think it's such a different question because what we find with the international rights is they were able to basically double them in the last few years here on television rights they were able to break into all these new international touring markets 
they're able to launch this service that can go internationally. But really, all in all, live events is probably still the main engine of of what you're getting big for international growth. And then it's the TV rights that have already been guaranteed and locked down. And this next this next cycle, I still don't feel like it's going to flip over to this YouTube thing. I feel like, you know, at least one of these two markets, either domestically or internationally, is still going to be really tied to we need to lock down these traditional media dollars. And so... Um, I do think you always run the risk when you just continually tell people that digital media is the future and that YouTube is going to be there. Because as we've seen, once you're prone to YouTube's whims and whimsies about what policies they have in place, you're suddenly beholden to another company. And the fact that, you know, they, they love that they have this direct pipe to their consumers, but then some, such a large percentage of the eyeballs they have, especially international eyeballs that they have, actually go through someone else's pipe on the YouTube yeah, platform. Well, I, I wouldn't argue that, like, in the future, YouTube is going to be this huge money generator for them. I think I think stuff with Avon and stuff with advertising in general probably in the future is not going to be where they're going to get or where businesses are going to get or entertainment businesses are going to get most of their money. But I think at least you have people watching. And I think if, if when, when I look at stats that show, you know, Where's the TV viewership going in terms of age? You see young people watch less and less TV, and you see older people, the older that they are, the more stable that it is. And the, the younger that they are, the less and less hours of TV you know, per day or per week that, that they're watching. And, and, and maybe it's sticking to me. It's not. I mean we see the view, the view count numbers on some clips, which we might talk about later with the Lesnar and Samoa Joe angle. Uh, some of the view counts are high. And I don't know if, if it's not sticking in terms of getting – fans to to go and go to a live event or to get the WWE network um i don't when i've gone to w live events and you look around the the median age certainly isn't 54 or if, or if that study's wrong it's and if it's 40 or something like that i i don't know that the median age is even 40 when i go to w live but events. i think dave dave would agree with you on that and i would as well which is and the same for the, the WWE network probably. the old people well i don't know about that but i, I will maybe, say maybe old people 40. don't go to the house shows absolutely I think a they know house shows are pointless, so they they don't feel the need to go to house shows. Um, but b uh, they this is about viewership, right? It's fifty four is the average viewer of the programming on television. So we, we should be careful not to conflate that with that's the average fans' age. Um, right. The network, I do think the network probably does actually skew older than people would think it would skew. Just because we know that the people that are primarily um, watching and hardcore fans of WWE that are still watching it traditionally are older. And the pay-per-views, which is for, as they say, the, the hardcore, the hard, or the core, the core, um, are are on that network there. So I, I still – I bet you the network skews much older than people would believe it would. Um, specifically because how do you – how do you assign a age under the age of 18 to the network, right? That would have to be a kid who somehow is a subscriber of the network, and, and you can't really do that because it's going to be some adult's credit card. Yeah, yeah. And so with the traditional TV audience aging, do you think in the future on Raw or SmackDown we may see a commercials for Depends or Geritol or Centrum Silver? No. future sponsors no <laughs> just because i know that those aren't um, marquee sponsors and so uh you know you, you're gonna i think that that a lot of it is that that wwe uh you know you might see i, I could see more like the viagra or that type commercial uh -huh. you know like i think that would be what their dream is to get those pharmaceutical commercials that are you know they want the golf demographic don't get me wrong they want the 
the things that golf television has because that's the highest you know the highest value sponsors there the luxury cars and the high pharmaceutical ads but um it's going to be some time because i think they fight that you know that that's the double-edged sword with this is that wwe uh, fights the fact that, you know, their viewership is so old and then they do these, you know, youth oriented programs. And as Dave has pointed out, when they had Saturday morning slam, uh, show designed for kids, it would like skew super old. And so they were always at this conundrum about the fact that, you know, they put together a kid's show and then essentially it was skewing even older than their normal programming. And so it's, it's very funny when it comes to, you know, wrestling fans, but the chart here is just fascinating to me that, you know, when you see that boxing has just been kind of on the steady rise and NFL has been on a steady rise and MLB has been on a steady rise and really only NBA is about the only one that seems to have created enough young new fans that they barely moved their median age over the last 15 years. Whereas wrestling, it's just shooting up and it passes by everybody. Um, Except baseball. yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't surprise me that, you know, traditional baseball, but again, you know, that goes back to my thing, which is, you know, what service is ahead of the WWE network? Well, it's the MLB network. And so it, I think it would be wrong to assume that OTT networks only skew young. Yeah, well, I, I think OTT networks skew young compared to their, their total audience. Um, but I just mean, especially the more expensive ones, like MLB is really expensive. And so I think it, it, it ends up being an income component that then kind of forces it higher. Compared to say, you know, a crackle or something. Do do, do you think with with the audience aging and probably NBCU knows even more specific statistics than than we're looking at here, and they probably know that W Raw and W Smackdown's uh, you know median age has has gotten older over the years. Does that hurt them in, in TV rights fees? Because I, I I tried to look into this in advance of talking about this is that you know the, the key demographic for most advertisers is 18 to 49. Yeah, I think that's the key is that it it only would hurt them if, you know, in fact, they were skewing at 70 or they were skewing at a demographic that didn't have any money. And so um, I think they'll just play it off as, you know, we're still in our key demographic and that you know, look how much more affluent our customers have become. No, I don't think it hurts them because uh, it only hurts you. Uh, <laughs> it ain't bragging if it's true. Right. So if you're number one on, on cable or you're doing very top of the night ratings, even if you yeah. do have an older audience, they still want you. You know, right. what What shocks me is just when I was going through the television numbers one more time today and looking back at, you know, where have they been since 99 onwards. And it just always shocks me when you, you realize, God, they were at $130 million back in like 2002 on television rights. And then they lost so much money by giving up their TV advertising, by moving to Spike and having all the other things that happened, that it took them in 2013, uh, 2012 was the first year, essentially, that they beat the number they were at in 2002. And that says a lot about, you know, what happens to your business uh, when you start changing around your business partners and changing around which components gave them money. They made all that $130 million on TV advertising. And if the network had been able to sell that TV advertising, they probably could have made $200 million. You know, it would have been much more valuable if they could get the kind of sponsorship they can get today. But uh, the, the difference is they ended up just basically saying, we'll, we'll let somebody else do all that TV ads because it's not useful for us to have our own TV advertising office and try to negotiate this themselves. But I always go back to the fact that they've, they went to a cable-only property. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you wall yourself into that pay television uh, universe, you risk losing any kind of 
um, non-affluent customers or casual fans or those people that are that just don't have that television rights. And maybe it's not as relevant as it was, you know, 10 years ago. But I think really losing SmackDown to cable only was a big blow to them in terms of their penetration and being able to ever keep themselves young. Yeah. And you're talking about SmackDown not being on UPN or, or MyTV in, in the last few years, right? Exactly. CW. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just one thing I want to point out here is that a lot of the talk around this around the talk about this study and, and about WTV ratings in general, I think a lot of people are looking for a way to to kind of punish WWE for its bad creative. And and I would be right there with them and to say that WWE's creative over the last several years at least has not been very good. But I I, I don't see yet anyway. We UFC their TV rights deal may give us a clue, but I don't see uh, them getting a, a, a bad deal yet. Um, no, no, I think I think uh, people are going to pay for for eyeballs, and I think you know it, the intrinsicity of, of the viewership is that you know they just don't disappear. They you can, they'll keep slipping, but they don't leave for good. And you know if things but, get but desperate, people want justice. Wrestling, wrestling fans want justice, and they want they want WWE to be punished for I all know. this bad booking that they do. And I mean, there, it, must, there must be a, there must be a consequence. It would be fascinating to me if you know you could throw the five million or the ten million and get a CM Punk back, and you know would that have an effect on the ratings? Because he was always someone who I kind of scoffed at being a big ratings mover in the past. But now with the audience that they have left, I, I actually think he would be a big ratings mover compared to the baseline. Well, so. At this point, he's been off TV for so long, and just like the mystique of him being gone, and the, the the chance, and people missing him, he would be a bigger star than he ever was if he came back now. Yeah, and I, I think if you gave him a rock deal, you know, I think he would come back to 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 do business with them if he was able to get that kind of you know sweetheart deal that they never give out to anyone. But and then there'd be the whole like hypocrisy thing about that's kind of why he quit because they you know he complained on the on the Commander podcast about all these part timers. I wish getting, you know, I wish sweet deals. I wish uh, Sportskedia will uh, write an article right now saying that Russell Nomics, Brandon Howard, and Chris Harrington have guaranteed that CM yes. Punk is coming back for an exclusive Brock Lesnar yes. deal for yes. Sp- Speculation is news. Yeah, 22 million rupees. It'll be awesome. I, I wrote an article uh, looking at, at the study that we're talking about, the one from the Sports Business Journal, um, trying to think about, well, why, why has it aged so much? Um, and I think there are at least three major reasons why the audience, at least the, the traditional TV audience has aged. And I think in no specific order, like we talked about last time, I think more and more, and for younger people especially, time is a resource. They don't want to sit down and watch a three-hour and ten-minute Raw, especially when the booking makes it so that so little of it seems to matter. And I think especially the younger viewers flee, and I think that's why you see the, the median age get older. That's why when we look at Showbuzz Daily and look at the demographics there, the, the younger demographics wane over time in the last couple of years. But what but what about other sports? I mean, it's not like, you know, if anything, football games, basketball games, and uh, baseball games have actually gotten longer over the last 15 years. I, I remember reading studies about that, talking yeah, about, the, the you consequences know, of those games actually matter. Wins and losses matter in determining who's going to go in the playoffs. And in WWE, there's parity, and a lot of it doesn't seem to matter. The storylines aren't really consistent. As, it, as you said last time, it, it, it has a must-miss feel to it. I agree, but I, I I just push back, I chafe a little bit at the idea that we can't train young people to uh, watch things that are long when we do see other sports still being able to, you know, fill their ballparks and their arenas for their games, and they're not necessarily getting shorter. And I think there's this point, too, is that this, 
this is something that I, I a point I tried to made, make about a year ago when I compared Google interest to WTV ratings over over several years, is that what we see in the TV ratings is maybe sports TV ratings are holding up better uh, than than that of scripted entertainment. But WB is sort of a hybrid between scripted entertainment and live TV, and so that I think the decline that we should expect to see for WB's TV ratings or for pro wrestling's TV ratings is somewhere in the middle between the stability of, of sports ratings and the downfall of, of scripted entertainment because WB's absolutely company, you know, I, I would love to see a comparison against Dancing with the Stars or Survivor or The Bachelor or some other network programming that has um, you know been on for ten years plus. And that we'd see, are they graying at the same rate as, you know, these other things too, as a more entertainment-driven property? Um, you know, I guess American Idol was a good, The Voice, uh, America's Got Talent. You know, there's a lot of shows that we could probably compare it to, to, yeah. to say these are other examples of somewhat episodic, somewhat consequential, long-form programming that, you know, um, reaches. Challenges, there's not a lot of it that's not on a network and where it's always tough when you're comparing cables and networks to each other. But, um, yeah. like you say, I, I agree with you in the sense that, you know, WWE will tell you they are an entertainment property and they will, they will scream it from the mountaintops because they thought being an entertainment property meant that they're exempt from basically being compared to a UFC $4 billion value valuation. And then also then they can kind of preach the Disney, the Disneyfication of their product saying, you know, we're great for families where we're primed to be acquired by a, a major media mogul, all that kind of stuff. But it, it challenges me sometimes to think um, just what trends they are. Because you're right. Uh, I, I agree. WWE is really tough to watch week over week over week. And it almost makes you wonder, would you do better with some kind of phasing to it? Yeah. And I think the other thing about WWE is that it's very discreetly segmented. More than more than any other sport, where you say, for example, in the NBA, LeBron James is going to be on the court for most of the game, and Tom Brady is going to be on the field for about half of it. Um, John Cena and Roman Reigns are going to be on TV for a couple segments. And, so, and, and WWE and wrestling in general has always disproportionately consumed interest in terms of you know what Wikipedia articles get the most edits and who's going to win the Time Man of the Year poll in 2000 and whatnot. They always, you know, fans are really rabid about it to get information about it online. And there's yeah. so many better ways to get information now than there was where you're right with the YouTubes of today. It's much easier for you to remain somewhat of a fan and be able to tune in occasionally. And, you know, like you say, there's if there's a Samojo Brock confrontation, I can hear about it on my podcast and then I can go and I can watch it on YouTube. And I never actually had to engage with it as a television program. Yeah, and and I wouldn't argue that YouTube, Hulu, and all the alt alternate ways of watching WB offset the declines that we see year over year, but I do think that WB and, and pro wrestling are especially ideal to be consumed through short video clips that you can find on the internet. Um, but let's let's but I mean, so Dave's point is always that you know USA is still in 90 million homes, and it's yeah. down maybe one percent from yeah. a year ago and raw ratings are down 10%, 20%, 25%. there's got to be more going on than just saying people are are going to watch it on uh, other streams because they're definitely not killing their cable subscriptions necessarily as as much as they are just not consuming it. Yeah, and I think the reason is 
the way that the product is booked, the inconsistent storylines, there's, there's a meaningless feel to it. Wins and losses don't matter. They stifle any any emerging star that seems to, to be coming up. They don't. So are especially you, if you're a hardcore fan, you, you don't feel like they really listen to you. So there's there's that one. Are you and, a- and I, advocating for the days of of the same person doing the run in throughout the entire show and uh, you know. Just, but more like cross. I'm saying more cross segment promotion, where there's a larger arc to the entire show rather than a single segment is this and then it's by itself. No, I think just booking the show more like a, a, a good pro wrestling show, like we see in examples like NXT, would would be helpful and allowing. I mean, not scripting it so much, allowing people to just do a promo and see if they get over or not, and then listen to the fans and, and and still try to manipulate them and, and get the most money out of them that you can, but to, but to see who gets over and, and then push the people who do start to get over. So, the, but there's, there's that one. I think there's people can watch it through alternate means like, like YouTube and Hulu and Facebook and so forth. I think the fact that raw is three hours and SmackDown is two hours. And, and, and like I said, a lot of it doesn't seem to, to really matter. So it's very skippable. I think it, we see a lot. It's a challenge, though, in wrestling because we do have this idea of saying, this person is now a star, we should invest more in them. And not a lot of other platforms are put in positions where they have to identify people and kind of recalibrate to in order to push them, push them more or less. You know, in sports competitions, a lot of it's going to come down to who's actually performing better. So, yeah. you know, when, when... Unless you're Demetrius Johnson in the UFC. Do you know, do you know about that? I am familiar with uh, Dave's uh, hatred of Demetrius Johnson headlining pay-per-views. Yeah. Well, he, he feels so. He's a, a fighter in, in UFC. I, I think he's like the 155 weight class. But his, his feeling is that UFC doesn't uh, push him enough, basically. Despite you know, there's arguments that he's he's the best pound for pound fighter in the world, and he's been he's defended the title something upwards of ten times or something like that. He's approaching the UFC record for title defenses, um, but he's not. A big star. He's maybe not the greatest talker, the greatest interview, and he, he's not a big draw when it comes to you know pay-per-view buys or TV ratings and whatnot. I mean, we have seen television shows where they have reacted to the interest in a certain character or storyline, and then essentially booked it more heavy as time went on. But it, it very few of them try to do it kind of in real time. We've seen it more probably on the reality shows, or actually not reality shows, but on like the game show type formats, where you're you know you're, you're trying to figure out oh, which voice star is getting the support and make sure that we put them in the right segments and put them integrated in the way that's going to make them look best because they're the most marketable. So we, we have seen a little bit of that, but there's not a lot of other shows that are, you know, are constantly trying to tweak their formula based on the feedback that they're getting from all these different channels. And I think one thing with WWE is as it's become more and more of a, a corporate machine, it's harder and harder for them to kind of navigate that kind of deft precision you need about making changes on the fly and that's why 205 live still happens after smackdown instead of before smackdown because they're you know they, they promise the word live it's because you know if these t-shirt plans have to be drawn up so much in advance and these names have to be trademarked so much in advance and so forth that it's sometimes tough to make those deft maneuvers uh yeah, so quickly well i think more than that it's it's stubbornness like vince McMahon decided he wants rowan reigns to get over and he's going to stick to his guns until this guy gets over on his terms in the way that he wants him to get over. Um, and if somebody else gets over or, or could get over in a way that doesn't necessarily fit his ideals of, of sports entertainment, he's not going to 
let that person follow that path. So who would you push above Roman Reigns? Nakamura. Um, at the time, Daniel Bryan. Uh, maybe Dean Ambrose. And like a, and a lot of these guys that, I, that you can mention, like Dean Ambrose, like the, the ship has kind of sailed in, in terms of the, these guys have been on TV and, and almost overexposed and seen as guys who are not, not very big stars. And the opportunity to make them into bigger stars than they were may have already passed. Um, but I think right now there's an opportunity with, with Nakamura. I think there is an opportunity with Bailey to make a, at least a really big merchandise draw and, and to address a demographic that they've probably never addressed before in, in terms of uh, kids and, and maybe young girls. Speaking of which, I was challenged to find any of the numbers I could about what percentage of the audience was female. You can probably hear me typing here. Um, <laughs> boom, 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 boom. On uh, WrestleNomics.com, you can see the article. And so I was going through it to figure out you know, what percentage of the audience was female and male. And according to WWE, as of 2015, they were saying 63% male, 37% female, which might sound... And this is probably the traditional television audience, right? So Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really wonder, like, okay, this is the this is the people who are watching on the USA Network, whatever TV network they're on at the time, and I think there's an important distinction. I know this is a sidetrack, but I think there's an important distinction to be made, especially as, as we get further along, to make a distinction between the, the traditional TV audience and then there's an audience uh, that's not watching it or, or is not necessarily always following it through traditional TV that may have quite different demographic makeup. Yeah, I but mean, anyway, sorry. In, in, no, 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 that's a good point. I, in 99 or 2000, they said it was about 70-30 male-female, and uh, way back in the day in 91, there was a guy who actually claimed 52% of their viewers were female, which I completely don't believe at all. In 1991, yeah. that, that 52% of the wrestling v- fans were female. In fact, uh, in one of the bigger studies that was done in the 80s... It's everybody's mom watching superstars with them on Saturday morning. Uh you know, in, in 1991, there was a, a article that Dave was summarizing from a November 1989 study. And at the time, it said WWF wrestling is twice as popular among males as is among females. So you could probably call that, you know, 66-33. So in the last, you know, 20, 25 years, it's been about a two-thirds, one-third split, plus or minus mm-hmm. maybe 5 or 8%. And it's a good question about, you know, is there a different demographic that's out there? Um, we've certainly seen some evidence in the past that maybe women were actually uh, stickier in some ways than the men when it came to some of the attrition on the television audience that, you know, they were saying the proportion of women was growing because as the young men were leaving, the women were a little bit more likely to stay. And again, we don't know what that to attri- attribute that to. We don't know whether that's the quote unquote divas revolution. We don't know whether it's um, a result of, you know, just a different focus and a different way of, of how they presented things or they have certain superstars that are going to hit big because, you know, of course, when we talk about Roman Reigns, you know, they always say it's kind of like the old John Cena cliche where it's it's the women and the children screaming, let's go Roman. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me just that as it's always been, wrestling seems to have, you know, a two-thirds, one-third split and over the last 25, 30 35 years, it's been somewhat consistent. But, I, I mean, that's not to say that, you know, it's 90% male the way you're going to find most internet-related uh, polls about wrestling seem to be dominated by. Right. So, the uh, and this is all WWE self-reported stuff here, right, that we're looking at from 2005 to 2015, it, right? 
this is all from investor slides probably yeah i mean they 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 source it in terms of it's coming yeah. from nielsen uh so i i give it some yeah. credence and like i say when when yeah. sports business journal did a a sports business daily did a research back in 2013 and they said uh WWE was 63% male and 37% female when Scarsborough Research did it. Um, so so I, it, it all seems to go to the same numbers. So I, I feel pretty yeah. – it's fairly accurate. But in, in, in that time, the last 10 or 12 years, it looks like it has slid up somewhat because we start off in 2005 where the female audience is 29%, and it's been somewhere between 35 and 37% with, with the last few years being around 38 or 37. I mean, there's are small moves, but – but it does look like there's a little bit more of a female audience, and maybe some of that's thanks to Total Divas crossover and Total yeah, Bells, and that's like that. The, and and then just taking is, women's wrestling more seriously finally and, and all that. And and they're including the showings of Total Divas, Total Bellas, and all those shows in right, their right, numbers. There you, go, yeah. you know, they yeah. now say 36% of our audience is female if you go to their webpage. And so they're definitely including that because that helps their numbers. And, it, again, it also helps them for um, selling purposes. Uh, for advertising because they really want to show that and you know i don't think it's a coincidence that you know they put on sometimes shows like christy knows best right before it which you know that kind of reality programming does skew a lot more female because um, i think they must think it's gonna segue well in i'm always a little surprised that you know they they don't want to wrestle away a, a total divas or total bellas or something from an e to put it on there as a lead-in for raw or smackdown yeah, like they have done with tough enough in the past. Yeah. Uh, but but a, a, a slight increase in the female audience is consistent with something I think we looked at in one of our first episodes is that um, looking at the demographics from this year compared to last year, it did look like the female audience was up a bit. And, and as Dave would argue, um, that's because they're they're chasing away all these uh, younger males and whatnot. But I think, you know, it's that's what's going to happen in, in this media environment as you move on into the future is that there's going to be the younger audience is going to go away more and more but i do anyway. wonder whether they have the creative leadership to be able to actually push a female talent you know are there any female writers right you mean, you mean 28 male writers don't know what the female audience wants well <laughs> i'm i think one male writer might because yeah. there's lots of shows that I, I think lots of women have watched that were probably written by a man and i bet you there's I, lots of shows that male audiences have watched that are written by women you know it's 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 not always binary, but at the same time, I would say 28 to zero, you're very unlikely that you're going to have those voices in the right. room and those, those thoughts. And it's the same, you know, it's the same idea between comedy writing where, you know, shows that do have more uh, female comics writing on them are going to then, you know, oftentimes you, it's amazing to see, hey, they do appeal to this broader audience because yeah. somehow there's a different voice coming through in some of the programming. I and think I, when the question has been, been raised in the past, it's like, yeah, there's one or two female writers or something like that but I, I couldn't name any of them like all you know the the writers names that that i know none of them are are women um and there's so much turnover there anyway you know and i mean we got stephanie mcmahon was the head of creative at one point but she's not anymore and um, she hasn't been for a long time and i think right. that's you know that's the other part of it is that sometimes people kind of like to pretend that she was doing creative a lot longer than she was you know the one angle right. that that drove tons of women to wrestling any guess Weddings, weddings, weddings. Yeah. I mean, it's it sounds sounds stereotypical, but you know they do point out the one time they held a wedding on a, a Christmas Eve episode. I think it was even, which kind of blows my mind that they would waste such a you know valuable angle. Which, which one was that? Do you know? I, was that the Steph? 
Let's see here. See, now the Stefan test. Could that have been on There's Christmas been... Eve? Let's, so it says, let's oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. It was, it was, it wasn't a Christmas Eve. It was, it was on February 11th, 20, 2002. It was going up against the Olympics. And, um, uh, it was a wedding angle and it was the Stephanie Triple H wedding angle. In 2002? 2002. No. February 2-11. You're, you're challenging me here. Because the, like that, the, you're talking about like the, the test angle where you know they, oh. they and then the jumbotron and the drive-through wedding and all that. That's in like '99 or 2000. So what is the angle I'm looking at? It's called Time for a Wedding. They're going to renew their wedding vows, is what it was. Oh, okay. Since these were the vows originally made by Triple H speaking in a falsetto voice while Stephanie was unconscious. <laughs> but was she really unconscious? Because then she turns on on Vince at the next pay-per-view. So uh, you know. <laughs> Who knows? Someone was talking about how the union changed the entire history of pro wrestling uh, just because Tess gets his wish from the union, and that was to ask Stephanie out, and that kind of puts it all in play. There you go. Uh, so, but uh, with, with demographics, just real quick, like, we're t- so we're, what we're saying is uh, 60, 66%, 33% maybe, male, female. Um, and when – and you referenced a WCW study that, that showed that was it people who were on their email list or something like that? Was it, it's like 90% male, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And then what, and then when I did the favorability and familiarity study, uh, I think late last year, I, I got, you know, 249 responses from Twitter, 235 responses from Reddit. And in both cases, they were 93% male. Uh, th- thanks to a, a, a wrestling observer, F4W daily update link that I got 89 responses for 100% of them were male. So there's that. I, I did um there was a a journalism study that somebody did one time on Reddit about um uh is professional wrestling coverage a form of journalism by a guy named Ryan Kreis. Yeah, yeah, Ryan Kars, yeah. Yeah, I and so that. I I covered that, but in there question number 2 on that was are you male or female of the 1578 people that answered 64 were female, so it was 96 to 4 percent so uh i do feel like it is always disproportionately uh male responses you get and i i think that can be a little bit um of a blind spot where it would either say um you know if there was an engagement index on the the gen by gender maybe it would be that the men are are way more engaged and that there's a much smaller portion yeah. of the population and yeah, is it the, just, the argument that i hear a lot especially on twitter is that they're just maybe, driven away maybe, Maybe yeah, maybe these platforms aren't very welcoming and, and you know make people feel like they they don't belong and they should be disincluded. And and you know it's it's nothing that's more accurate than having two uh, white middle aged men explain why women aren't interested in interacting with us on the internet sure. uh, without sure. you know actually asking any of them. Am so I middle aged? We should continue to yeah we're not going to live oh, very man. long. Yeah, there's an asteroid coming. Oh man. Um, oh man. But tell me a little bit about. Uh, when we're talking about this Joe Lesnar angle, what is your takeaway on the fact that it got 5.7 million views on YouTube, 3.7 million views on Facebook? That's yeah. 9.4 for those of you adding yeah. it up. Yeah, so a lot of this stuff and a lot of this stuff that I think about, it's like if you look at my Twitter, it's sort of just thinking out loud. But yeah, as you said, 5.7 million on YouTube, 3.7 million on Facebook. That's as of this afternoon, as of Friday afternoon. Um, so that's... 9.4 million total. So that's worldwide. George Barrios tells us that it's that 20 to 30% of, of their social media digital engagement is from the U.S. 
So 20% to be conservative, 20% of 9.4 million. This is the best part of WrestleMania because then we just do math live on the air. Uh, 20% of 9.4 million is 1.88 million. So that's like, okay, we can guess that, you know, 1.88 million of these clicks or views are from the U.S. Um, so you can, so that at least on its face, that looks pretty impressive. That that that's how many people saw that angle. That's um, but uh, on I, its face. I know. All I'm right, just hang, always, hang I'm always we're, torn because it feels like that you're saying how many people um, received my email about Viagra. No, there's going to be some caveats. So the, the first hour of Raw to compare did where where this angle took place on the first hour of Raw uh, did 2.77 million viewers. Um, that was the most viewed, viewed hour of Raw, by the way. Um, but now that's the average viewership throughout an hour. Um, you got to keep in mind though on on Facebook. I, I did some some looking on our, our Empire State Wrestling Facebook to just compare like well how many of our quote unquote views are really people watching for any length of time, and about twenty. And we've, so we have like a highlight clip that I looked at as a four minute long clip, so maybe it's somewhat comparable. Um, it did twenty five percent of the people who who viewed it actually watched it for more than thirty seconds. So you can maybe knock knock down that Facebook thing, that that Facebook number of 3.7 million. Maybe more people are staying with it on YouTube, which has the 5.7 million, the bigger number of views, because it's on YouTube. It's not part of like an autoplay like it is on Facebook, where you just scroll through the news feed and like this thing just starts playing whether you decided to watch it or not. Um, but but there's that. So on its face, it kind of suggests that. 40% of the people in the U.S. who saw the angle, or at least scrolled past the angle, uh, saw it not on the USA Network, but on YouTube or Facebook. Um, Which is a fascinating, like, it's a giant number. I think, from the sake of saying, it, to me, what's much more telling is to say, it had 9.4 million views, whereas most other clips have, what, a million views? Most well, if, if we combine Facebook and YouTube, maybe I, I, I know on YouTube, a couple will break a million. Maybe oh. maybe one or two per show will break a million. And um, I remember I I googled Lesnar on, on the WWE channel just to see how often he broke a million, yeah. and he always breaks a million, is what I learned. So Lesnar is money. Um, the fact that Joe is with him, I think helps because I, I also when I looked at Samoa Joe, he also seemed to trend a little bit higher. But and five million after less than a week seems I think, really no, high. I think, I, mean, it, I think it's success. It, it is to me. It's much more relevant that it's higher than the others because I think a lot of this yeah. is just noise. That's like you know Trump's Twitter followers. What percentage of them are going to be just bots? Same with um, you know the click farms that are just at work on so many things. You know when the video stream channels had to take out all their fake views. Some of the, the some of the you know the major Vivo type. Uh, uh, YouTube channels lost millions and millions of views. And so I do wonder if some of that is just, you know, the, the strange um, click farms that exist in the ether that are somehow making money in some direction. But the fact that this trends disproportionate to other things is relevant to me because that then at least says of the real views, this has a higher number of them. Um, whether that 25%, you know, engagement levels, right. I would actually think when you're that popular, you know, your engagement level goes way, way lower in terms of how many people are actually watching the whole thing. But at the same time, it's, it's relevant to me. And I hope, I hope it does affect their thinking in a way. And as a lot of people have said, you know, as opposed to making Joe one and done, uh, it's a chance to make a new star. And so the fact that, you know, you might be sacrificing that new star so early, maybe that's not the best course of action. 
but it's not always clear on WWE's thinking whether or not they really want to protect things anymore or what how they yeah. react. You know, it's funny because it's like they worked so hard to build up Braun and then Braun gets hurt. And so it's almost like then they just are forced into this other course of action. And it seems like the history of wrestling finding superstars is built 99% around people getting injured or not showing up or being at the wrong place and getting that opportunity. And next thing you yeah. know, you're Barry Hardy wearing a turtle outfit and you're going to be on <laughs> WWF unreleased volume one my, my friend had me watch the first episode of, of raw the other day and um it, it has the steiners versus the executioners and we're, we're sitting there watching it scott's i think rick steiner takes one of the executioners and shoots him across the ring and he just and the, and the executioner just falls on his face he doesn't even make it to the ropes and uh, we're like who who are these guys so i so i cage match it and i'm like who are these guys you know, and I'm from and I'm from Western York, and it's and like okay, what, execution number two is Dwayne Gill. Oh, you know who execution number one is? It's Barry Hardy. You know, so there you have it. It's Barry Hardy. So with with all <laughs> with all of this, it is um it is interesting though that you know it, uh, certain clips will get disproportionate amounts, and I I do feel at least it's a little bit more even year over year to look at things like the YouTube views. Uh, than even the Google Trends, because the Google Trends, we still don't seem to have a really good feel for how they correlate to any metric over time of whether or not there's still the same kind of universe looking at things or whether, you know, is a 2013 number, how does that compare to 2017, whether there's even a, a apples and oranges comparison? I, When it comes to Google Trends, I, it, the way I understand it, and I've looked at the, the help section, I mean, there's nobody at Google you can talk to to ask a question like this, but... What it's what it says in there is that this is the number of of searches. It's like divided by the number of searches in the period. Um, I don't know if I'm how to, how to explain this. It's adjusted for the time, so it's not as if like Google Trends goes back to like 2004, where in 2004 there's probably fewer total searches in the world, right? Than than there would be today because so many more people use the internet. I, I my understanding is that it's adjusted for that. It's adjusted for the total searches in the period. If you follow me. Yeah, if, if that if that's the point you're making, it 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 hopefully I mean it, it's meant to be. It's just a question of you know what does it mean? Is it is it really? I don't well, know. it's it's the same idea of being like how can we only be down one percent on television uh, viewers who can get USA and yet we're down twenty percent on raw ratings? What does that mean? Um, because it it says to me that volume's not your problem; it's interest. But then, you know, the counter to that would be, okay, it's not interest, it's engagement. It's you know. Attendance is fine, and mer merchandise revenue is fine. And, and that's why I say they keep running fine. more shows, and, and they keep hiking up ticket prices. And so when you're doing both of those things, that signals yeah. that you don't feel that you're in an inflection point where you're oversaturated. Or if you are, you're happy with your point of saturation. You know, or if there's fewer fans, they're, they're getting more money out of the fans that are left. And, and they're not necessarily trying to bleed the fans dry. You know, you could, in theory, make every event into a five-day super fan fest and make it $5,000 a ticket and do all this stuff. But we're seeing that, you know, there are these breaking points where, you know, Money in the Bank has trouble selling out, even though it's a pay-per-view event. And so there are these times where I think, you know, you're going to start seeing that kind of pushback. And so then you're left with that big question. I know I'm jumping way ahead in our, our, our show notes here, but, you know. Do it. Do you go to another marketplace? So WWE, for instance, they just announced they're going to go to China again. Um, I think it's going to be their fifth show in China. Six, maybe, if you want to count Hong Kong as a show. 
that's not a lot of times in, in 15 years, so I don't think this China thing's much more than them just kind of bragging about the fact that they keep talking about China, and they want They're to say they did it. sticking their flag in China and saying, we're here. Yeah, and this time I think it's a golf uh, organization that's helping sponsor it, and of course John Cena will be there, and the rest of the people kind of sound like SmackDown talent. Um, but they're, they, John, you know, John Cena will be there speaking fluent Mandarin. Fluent. He's, he's, that's all he does, you know? But uh, I thought what was interesting was that WWE considering doing a WrestleMania in London, where they were one of 25 cities that were pop, that yeah. were surveyed as possible Mania locations. And so that's a so, good example of, you know, you could make money by going international for a WrestleMania one of these yeah. years. So, like, the Independent picked that up. And, and you look into – I don't think they say this in, in that article, but you look into it, and, and this was – they're doing an article based on a survey where fans were surveyed based on 25 cities, and London was one of them. So I don't think it's like, oh, they're really considering London, but there's like, okay, here's 25 cities that we might do a WrestleMania in, and let's gauge interest on well, London along with 24 others. What fascinates me is the idea to say, when do you make that leap? Do you do that after you have a WrestleMania that's not selling out well, and then you basically use it to kind of fuel the fire again? Or do you try to strike while the iron is super-duper hot? Um, I personally think... WrestleMania will not be the first pay-per-view they hold overseas. I, I strongly no. think it's going to be a, either a SummerSlam or probably not a Rumble. But, uh, you know, you... If, if I were them, I would I would take a, a pay-per-view that's none of the big four or whatever. Well, one of the and, big four. Survivor and, Series can go wherever. No one's going to care. I, I, would, I would give it its own special brand, like some sort of UK brand pay-per-view with some sort of, you know, specialized UK type, type name. And yeah. then you can still save the, the other four for domestic pay-per-views or whatever and you can do your big you know three-day extravaganza or whatever and someone did a great job they, they pointed out about that china show they're just like why is that not on the network that would be a killer thing to have on the network because it makes you look like a big deal because you're running a house show in china and you can watch it here and you're going to see yeah. john cena speaking chinese you're going to see these you know chinese superstars who are terrible or maybe they'll be good. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows how are, they are? Are there are there multiple? Like they they just signed a, some some Chinese wrestlers, are, uh, and they're going to be more than one of them. More than the guy who was in um. Ting Bang. Under the giant. Battle yeah, World. yeah. Ting Bang. Oh, uh, wasn't they, weren't they going to have somebody in uh, the Mae Young Classic? Probably, you would think so. I think they might. I I, I thought I had read that the, one of the women might be in that, but uh. But yeah, just but just like that, you know that that Japan show they did, which was not an NXT show, George. It was a WWE show, Beast from the East, with Brock Lesnar. For God's sake, George. George, we know you're listening. <laughs> um, you know that 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 had a great vibe to it. I remember how cool everybody thought that was because it felt different. And even last year, where you know you were doing those that Toronto show, where you know you had uh, was it Lesnar versus Harper or Lesnar versus Harper and Bray? I don't remember how it was, but uh, I was there for that. I should know. Uh, that's, that's, it was supposed to be Bray, but he just threw around uh, Harper. Yeah, right? I think Harper. Harper. I think that's what was led to the downfall on his knee. Actually, in the end, is is that was really? the damage kind of getting set up that finally mm -hmm. snapped a few months later. Luke Harper, by the way, who just wrestled in in Rochester, New York, on the pre-show. Yeah, they shot jerseys though. It was funny. They they shot an angle for his pre-show match though. They the week really? before they shot an angle with um. Uh, God, what's his name? Uh, the Drama King. Um, Aiden uh, uh, English. Yeah, Aiden English, where they did a, a, like a Twitter, like a, it was like an online angle where he was doing something and then he interrupted him and then they fought the next time on SmackDown and had a thing and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. But maybe they were just doing a whole house show loop 
Maybe they do that all the time. I've just never noticed. But I localized thought was... content, localized content. There you and, go. And again, that's for, the sort of thing. You know, I don't want to go too deep into the whole big show and talk as Jericho uh, thing. But I think that's the kind of thing that you can at least do if you're going to have the guys sit around the arena all day. Why aren't they allowed to shoot? You know, little mini angles that are going to do stuff. You know, Primo has probably had some of the most Primo content out there because he and Heath Slater seemed always to have enough time to have a dodgeball league or do whatever it was and, and do kind of those fun stuff that they were doing on that WWE.com for a while. When, when did that happen? The dodgeball league? Oh, that was like, yeah. there was, there's like a, um, John Cohn, I think is the ref and it's like called WWE games. And like it's Heath Slater doing different games every week. So it'd be Twister and then it'd be this recently. No, it's about a pff, nine months ago, a year ago. It's great content. I really, really enjoy really? it. It's, it's wow. one of those good examples of like, the personalities that come out during those things are so much more fun than the personalities. You know, you can't really say, hey, let's go put this on television because that's it doesn't feel like it's television content. But at the same time, it feels like it's something that's personality and character driven in yeah. a way that is not expressive in in the you know minute and a half of the clone selling timeshares. I kind of feel like this stuff would, even if it doesn't feel like wrestling content, it feels like maybe this would get personalities over better than scripted promos or scripted skits where they're walking backstage pretending the camera's not there and so forth well i wonder if if you know it's it's they throw it to the nobody writer and that if they get over on that then they get allowed to book stuff on the main roster or what but it's always but it always seems like the simple is that the talent themselves are probably the ones driving it and then you know it becomes a work expense if you're able to write off that new game of twister (laughs) yeah what did you think about that um some of those powerpoints i was able to pull from the uh, mid-2000s of WWE, especially my favorite. It's all about the storylines and talent. And it just says, storylines and talent, arrow, TV ratings, yeah. arrow, attendance, arrow, advertising. Well, that's a good visualization. I, and I think, <laughs> and that made me think of something, uh, you know, new media related, in that here they've got the TV ratings at the center of everything. You, you, you take talent, and you take storylines, and you make them get TV ratings, and then that that spawns attendance and advertising and pay-per-view and licensing. So that, that, that spawns all these uh, revenue streams. And I think um, what we have now, and I think the, the super indies that have, have emerged in the last few years uh, is evidence of this, is that it's – I remember – probably like being in high school and probably my senior year where I didn't have much of anything to do and I would just take the observer to to study hall and to class and and like I remember like sitting in like math class and like this is a joke of a math class and just reading the observer in like 2002 and I think it was at the time where like where Dave was doing a lot of history pieces he was doing like the history of the WWF if you remember that and um and he was and and one of the big things you you get out of that is that to become a a promotion that's going to draw people to an arena you have to have television you can't just not have television and then expect to draw because how, how else are people going to know uh, and, and and perceive these people as stars um and i think what we have now is that tv is not the only form of media so the old maxim of tv being a, requ- a requirement to run a wrestling promotion is fading and what you need and what, we, what you really always needed was a strong media presence whether that's through tv now through digital or social and i think a lot of a lot of fans maybe kids especially maybe they discover WWE through maybe not necessarily watching um raw or smackdown on the usa network maybe they discover WWE through playing a video game or action figures so, so to some degree i agree and some degree i don't um i i think the challenge of you know say a lucha underground to become a full-fledged wrestling organization despite having super talent 
despite having connections all over the world and this and that says a lot about the challenges you have about really breaking out beyond, um, you know, being limited. Even TNA, you know, kind of became a cautionary tale of how can AJ Styles draw less when he's associated with TNA than when he's just on his own. But well, I think well, I think what happens with TNA is I think the, the first big advantage that WWE has over any other promotion in the world is that WWE is the major league of wrestling, and everybody else is kind of perceived as a minor league. And, you know, when people say like, oh, if you don't like WWE, just turn it off. I think what they're saying is, is sort of like saying to a football fan, if you don't like the, what the NFL is doing, if you're being critical of how they're running their league, stop watching stop watching NFL games. But a, but a football fan is going to do that because the NFL is, is the major league of football. Um, yeah, but, but anyway. But no, I, I just mean in terms of it's uh, what you see with the rise of the super indies is the success of individual proprietors to be able to make a living outside of wrestling in the WWE. Yeah. I don't know if you see the success of wrestling promotions outside of WWE because I've never been clear on whether does PWG really pay for all those guys because what we hear is that they're willing to work dirt cheap because they want to be there. So that's not yeah, – Because it gives them the buzz to get additional bookings. Yeah, which again doesn't say your product is – you know that's like saying I'm willing to sell it cheap to get on Oprah uh, and then I can sell a lot. But that doesn't mean that necessarily that other show is successful. So I think PWG is a weird example because there's that. Now, you could argue there's been some U.K. promotions that have made a lot of money by bringing in these top stars and been able to sell lots of buildings. And that's great. You know, so maybe it is true. Maybe we are at that era of doing that. But I think it's easy, easy to conflate success for a promotion and success for an individual because it's kind of like being a wrestling writer. Right. Just because I make money doesn't mean the site that I'm working for makes money. (laughs) Yeah. But and then. I would agree that not necessarily. I know there's super indies out there that don't. You know, this isn't their living, and they're not making a ton of money. And they they at least say that they're um you know they don't make money on it. They're just living hand to fist on it. Um, but for the wrestlers, there's I think there's more indie wrestlers who are making a living, and some even making a part time living off of wrestling. Uh, certainly than than there was before social media became what it is today. Mm, I think I think maybe more than. More than 10 years ago, yes. More than 20 years ago, hard to say. Because if you really add up the number of indies that were running 20 years ago, or 30 years ago especially, um, and 40 years ago for sure, you know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't compare it to the territory days or anything like that, but I would compare 2017 to 2005. Yeah, but like 2001, there was a lot going on then. And, you know, it was a pretty hot time and there was a lot of things. It, it, it is tough. It's amazing to me how much it costs to do things. <laughs> you know, I yeah. run a business and if when I say what the top line is, you're like, wow, that's a lot of money. And then you'd be amazed, be like, I pay people $10 a show. And you'll be like, how can you make 10 grand a year and you pay people $10 a show? And I'll be like, that's because when you run 52 times a year and you need this many people and you have this many expenses – You'd be astounded. I spend almost all my money on just paying people, and I want to pay them more, but I really can't. And a wrestling fed obviously doesn't run usually 52 times a year, but you can kind of multiply some of those numbers by 10, and the other ones divide by four, and it's really not that much more. It, it's yeah, incredible. I, I, I to saw, me. I saw some. Uh, I think a wrestler on Twitter try to ask fans like, "What do you think?" Because you know, he kind of knows, but what, what do you think the average wrestler gets paid? And so, you know, some people were. Declining to, at, to to answer, and then some people were guessing like well, I don't know three hundred dollars or something like that. It's not what the average wrestler on the Indies is not getting paid three hundred dollars. But the the bigger names, the names that you might recognize, 
are making. Yeah, yeah, dollars. yeah. Exactly. They'll, and, they'll, and these are people who have never been on major television. Yeah, I mean, in the old days, I remember it being you know anywhere from three hundred to a thousand for the big names, and then almost everyone else on that show was next to nothing. And then maybe the, if there was an indie guy. <laughs> Who was you know a local indie guy working there? Maybe he was getting fifty or a hundred, or seventy five or you know one fifty and a beer, you know whatever whatever that is. Um, and a lot of times it's it's you know like they say it's it was exposure. And so it's interesting where you're right. It's in the sense that for a long time it, the idea was you hustle to get noticed so that you can get signed for money. And now we're at a place where there are some people who are able to actually just live off of this. And work it, and, and that's great or, for or them. Z- Z- Zach Sabre Jr. was probably offered a contract, but decided not. I, I just want to be an indie wrestler, and he, I'm sure that's his living. Oh yeah, and I mean, or like a Kota Ibushi, where you know, he he basically is languishing. Well, I shouldn't say he's languishing, but he's, he's definitely not thriving in New Japan right now. He's kind of just getting Tiger Mask W. I know, but he, but I mean, he's just kind of there, right? And he, he probably could have had a top spot in WWE for what they're doing. But is this better for him overall, for his environment, for his fit, for where he wants to be with his life? Probably. He's probably happier. So it's it's just it, everybody's going to be motivated by different things. You know, I think of the Young Bucks. They have family. They have kids. It's got to be really tough on them to be on the road that much. And like they say, they're hustling so hard because they want to make that money now because they know they can't you know, necessarily get that in 10 years. And there's other guys in WWE themselves who are that way, who, you know, people were shocked at, you know, Miz selling a like $4 million house. And they couldn't believe he did that. But you got to keep in mind, he's been in the, he's been with the company for twelve years. He's got a good contract, and I'm sure he has a mortgage, and he saves his money. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, we're getting way off. I don't know where <laughs> I was even going, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, one thing I I dug into this week uh, was just the futility of trying, uh, in general, just uh, with WrestleMania <laughs> statistics and just how sometimes That's what it's, you have to do. You know, I I think. When I when I went to work on my book, uh, my Kickstarter project, I should really say, it, it became a book and then it became a nothing, was that essentially I said, I'm going to just do something about wrestling stats and put it in a published form. And a bunch of people gave me money to say, hey, I'd really like to buy that. I'll, I'll pay you some money up front. And it was just overwhelming trying to refine what I thought would be appropriate to meet people's expectations that it kind of eventually kind of just drove me mad with the the need to like make it better make it right make it bigger until finally i just quit and just said here's everybody just take your money back and um let me just do do things without feeling guilty every time i'm sitting playing a video game instead of sitting there and looking at spreadsheets all day and the way it works with wrestlenomics is a lot of times i'll just take a project and i'll dig in and i'll dive in and it takes a long time to take the data set and convert it into something that is usable and then at the end of it all, there's really not a strong conclusion to it all. So, for instance, I tried to take all of Dave's – he has these monthly business figures where he gives what the house show was every um, – house show attendance in North America was every month by promotion. And this is mostly his estimates based on his results column. And then occasionally he's used some numbers from the WWE filings where he's backed out you know, what the attendances he knew of, of certain events. Right. And I asked him once, where do, where do you get these – attendance numbers from and and he told me that they were correspondence and sometimes he gets legit numbers um i think if he's getting legit numbers why are they why are almost all of them round numbers 
Well, I think maybe he gets pay-per-view. I think so, sometimes the pay-per-view numbers are non-round numbers, but but anyway, I think the yeah. house show numbers that that we deal with a lot, they're all round numbers, and I think they're all sort of based on so and so sent in a house show report and, and guessed at the attendance, and he extrapolated something from that. Though I would also argue, if you don't have good data, you should probably be using round numbers because if you did sure. say it was four thousand four this year and is four thousand two a year later. I would say that's bullshit because <laughs> how the heck would you possibly know that? Yeah, um, and, and I'm not saying these numbers are way off because we we've looked at, the, at it the last couple of years and the number that W reports at the end of the year is close to the number that that we total from Dave's reports. So they that would tell me that they're you know, close, pretty yeah. close. And, and so I took those numbers. He has he also has average gate per house, which is really just him taking the average number attendance number and multiplying it by a ticket price. Where he, in the early days at least, he would just fixate on a ticket price, say, hey, it's $12 a ticket, it's $20 a ticket. And he would just use that number for most of the quarter or most of that year. Um, so I, I did that, but then I wanted to correlate that with house shows. So to do that, you have to get a data set of every house show that's happened since 1991. And then break down who it was that was in the main event, and then who was on, these, on the shows, and do it all. So you can imagine that takes a while to download that whole data set, and because... Data sets like that are, are constantly being improved, especially in the kind of pre-1996 era. Um, that, you know, I, I, I like to... I, I kind of enjoy that part of the process, so I usually start from scratch. So, you know, download a couple thousand cage match records and convert it into this big file and do it all. And then finally, when you finally get all that work done, then you can correlate it against what the house show attendance was, you know, quarter over quarter, month over month. And then it was me trying to say okay, who was the biggest draws at different times in the year? And what you're going to see is that unless you do some kind of seasonality factor, if someone headlines during a very particular part of the year and then disappears, then they're going to look like they're fantastic. So, you know, if um, Bob Hawley happens to have one month where they give him for house show runs uh, and it happens to be during the holiday season or happens to be during the lead-up to WrestleMania or something that's going to look a lot better than even someone who's a legitimate draw but was there for 12 months of the year on top. So then you have to start adding in factors of, okay, let me say people that did more than 10 house shows and then people that did more than... Then you run into seasonality around, you know, now I'm using one-year markers. And then I have to start saying, well, what is a rolling 12-month period? And so I did all this work, and most of the results I got were kind of garbage. Um, what, uh, one result I got was someone finally challenged me, why don't you do only singles matches of people that like do more than 10 house shows at a time in a year. And that number at least was somewhat close to a list of people that I'd normally say, Hey, that kind of looks right. Where it's saying, you know, 92 was Hogan, Roberts, Piper, Sid, Savage, Flair, Michaels, Undertaker. And then number nine is Berserker. So... <laughs> But Hogan is up at like 6,600, whereas hey John, Savage... John Nord, if they just would have listened to the crowd, John Nord could have been a big star. Uh, 93 was Bigelow, Flair, Undertaker, Yokozuna, Savage, Hart, Hall, and then number eight. I think number eight's kind of the special spot here, Mr. Hughes. So it's, you know, it always... But then like 94, the top house show draw would have been Brian Adams at 3,500 people. But 3,500 people compared to Hulk Hogan at 6,600 people two years earlier speaks to... You know, is 3,500 people drawing to a house show really even a draw? Or is that just kind of you're getting your, your – you're punching at weight? 
that you're yeah. not you're not actually moving the market in any way. In the same year, the next year, you have Lex Luger followed by Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Jeff Jarrett, Tatanka, and then '96 you have Bret Hart and, and Kevin Nash, and you actually see an improvement there where it's gone from that 3,000 range to the 5,000, 6,000 range, and then by '97 you have actually Triple H at the very 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 top followed by Shawn Michaels, Mick Foley, and then Austin's only 6,500, which, again, I think speaks a little bit more to when a guy is um, on top for a part of the year versus a guy being on top for the whole year, the difference that's going to happen. Then 98, of course, things just go crazy. You have The Rock, you know, averaging more than 10,000 people um, and and so forth with this study here where 2002, it's Rikishi, and 2000 and... Um, see another funny one uh 2007 uh, mr kennedy's on top at 6,000 people or uh 2006 was umaga 2002 was scott hall so again if you don't, don't put a seasonality component in here i think you get some kind of goofy answers and i haven't actually worked that out yet but it was just kind of my story of sometimes it might seem like i'm not doing any new wrestling studies and what it probably is is that i'm gathering tons and tons and tons of data <laughs> And then getting really frustrated because it becomes so silly that I worry that if I publish it, people are going to then start saying this is truth or making fun of the fact that this is so far from the truth. Yeah, so if you haven't seen us either of us tweet in a while, just imagine we're we're deeply uh, immersed in, in uh, you know, putting data into a, an Excel spreadsheet and not finding anything. You know, I mean, so, sometimes you have to dig and sometimes you find stuff and sometimes you don't. I mean, I, you, you put together this uh, – spreadsheet once with all these house show attendances from 2006 to 2016 and i try to do something similar and i try to adjust for the day of the week and and the month and and adjust for the market and compare it to compare a given attendance to other attendances in that same market which was you know, my, my best attempt to to be fair about it uh, but what and then and then look at it by year and see well who is the based on all that stuff who is who's the strongest draw and you get, you know, I'm looking at it now. You get stuff like Zack Ryder is at, is at the top in one year, and, and and often John Cena is at the top, and that makes sense. And uh, that article's kind of already been written. Um, you get R Truth is the number two draw in uh, 2013. Chris Axel. Yeah, and again, what you also get is guys that um, persevere. So if you have a guy who's on tons and tons of house shows and doesn't seem to fall off, sometimes they actually do a little bit better. I remember, um, like, Bart Gunn would show up a lot when I would do the 90s one for whatever reason. Or I remember I tried it once in the 80s, and Rockin' Robin ended up killing it because she only did a very few number of house shows. And the one she did was usually, like, a bigger house because they wouldn't bother putting these women's matches on unless they were, you know, near a big taping center or something. Yeah. But it, 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 it's, a, it's a hazardous thing because, like, you put all this work into it, and then sometimes I just fall in love with it, and I'm like, yes, I have to. I have to write something about this. And then I, like this one time, I, I, not that long ago, I did this uh, this article about trying to look at house show attendance like through through the first six months of the year, and you know like went through the trouble to take like pictures of everybody, put headshots on on this on this graph and everything, and it looks like you know Sami Zayn is this negative house draw and things like that, and you know people see that and they're like, what? So and so's a draw, so and so's not a draw, and you know they they take it. Uh, out of context, as you said. Well, you know, what what inspired me to go back to this was Dave loves to insist that Kevin Owens versus Sami Zayn was like the top draw of, I think, last year. And as people have pointed out, they only had like one singles match it, or it, at best. They had a couple triple threats where Seth Rollins was in there. And so, yes, that is the highest drawing draw. And a lot of that had to do with Montreal being a really good marketplace right. for that one match. Right. And I think there's some, you know, legs in some of that stuff. 
But at the same time, I do think it might be a little overstated to, you know, then try to make the assumption then that, you know, what's the difference between someone who's drawing 3,500 and someone who's drawing 3,400? You know, yeah. the best we were able to come up with is say, Cena sometimes can draw 800 or 900 more. And that's not even always true, but it was for a long time. And I think if, if you see the same name year over year over year doing it, then that means there's something to it. If you see it just a one-time peak, it's like when I would go through pay-per-views and then say who was in the main event in that pay-per-view. And you would get, you know, the Mr. Kennedys of the world uh, being on top because maybe he had two events that somehow did bafflingly strong. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder when when all these Hall of Fame arguments come out, and I don't see everybody doing busting out Excel spreadsheets and entering the data, and they're they're talking about well, so and so's a draw. He, he drew really big in world class and all this, and and are they just saying this based on a couple of big shows that they know about? Like where where are these assertions coming from? But I will say what I've done before a lot of times to have fun is to to take the Wrestling Observer Awards find who is in the um in the hall of fame and then kind of come up with a backwards looking regression to say basically who should be in the hall of fame based on the same criteria so who has the most awards but is not in the hall of fame and then which awards should we really weight heavily to say are meaningful awards and you end up finding you know daniel bryan should be in or um brock lesnar or cm punk to a certain degree uh, and so I use that a lot of the times when I'm trying to do my my kind of deal breaker gut breaker type thing, and in, especially around an edge or um, even a Batista, where you know you might say, wow, you know it does kind of look like Batista moved numbers for a short period of time, but yeah, th- th- what, does that matter? You know, is that yep. really a Hall of Fame or is that just a Hall yeah. of Good Timing? <laughs> <laughs> and his run was fairly short. I think. When, when, one of the things I've looked at just on overall attendance for WWE is that there's in that sort of 2006, 2008, there's a little bit of a bump in attendance. And that I would, the only thing I can think of to, to correlate that to is the rise of Cena and, and Batista. Yeah. And, and again, and, um, you know, Elimination Chamber was a good example of something where for a while there it was a real draw where you could mm-hmm. really actually see a bump whenever it was happening. And that was exciting for a while there when you could actually like stip, you could correlate, you know, I, I wrote a whole, model one time about you know pay-per-view buys based on the number of weeks of build and the raw rating and whether or not there's an under whether or not there was a uh a hell in the cell match and elimination chamber match on there and then whether or not ufc was a negative influence on it and it was pretty cool and it it makes me mourn for the fact that we don't have you know like pay-per-views to look at anymore as a metric and uh so it, it's sad in that sense that you know i sometimes i feel like i'm just grasping at the house shows more just because i don't have pay-per-views to go back to um, or yeah. it makes me wonder if I was just neglecting that whole body of house show data that was out there. And then to our last point, you know, you and I were just talking about why old people don't go to house shows. So, uh, you know, it's always a question of what, what makes people excited. You know, NXT is coming back to Minneapolis in the end of July, and I had a chance to do the presale yesterday, and the tickets were like 75 bucks for floor. And I just I sat there for a long time, and I finally said, <laughs> you know what, I'm not going to spend – $225 for me and my two buddies to go see NXT. Maybe I'll get some cheaper tickets or maybe I will the day of the show, you know, but just right now a month out, I just am not that excited about NXT. I, I got to see him a year ago. It was a lot of fun. You know, I got to see a, a Tommy, uh, pants, Austin Aries in the ring to win a match. That was pretty cool. Really? Yeah. It was, it was, they, they, it was the day of the Vikings Packers game. 
uh, which is a big rivalry here in town. So uh, they they were really smart about it. Where Austin Aries, who is from Wisconsin, came out in Packers gear, and then Hideo Itami came out in Vikings gear. And the finish of the match was yes, Hideo Itami pulled down uh, <laughs> pulled down his pants, and so when Austin Aries was like uh, went to grab it, then he gave him like the GTS. So it was a. <laughs> It was, it was, I thought it was actually really, really cleverly done. Whereas like Austin Aries, it was, I, I could see why Dave loves Austin Aries so much. Cause I was like, I can tell Austin Aries put this together knowing the local audience. Cause he used to wrestle here for like steel dominion way back in the day. Yeah, so you can see him approaching Kenta with a Vikings Jersey. Yeah. So. Just being like, this will get you over like no tomorrow <laughs> in this, in this crowd. And it did, you know, people yeah. were going absolutely nuts. I mean, Riddick Moss was the main event of the show. Because he was a former Vikings player. And oh. he gave a whole promo in the middle of it. He started as a baby face on the show. And then gave a promo about his favorite thing about Minnesota was leaving it. And his mom's terrible cooking. And so yeah. the entire match was uh, people just chanting poodle hair at Riddick Moss. I don't know if you've ever seen Riddick Moss's hair. Uh, I don't know if I have. I know that name though. But uh, yeah, he's the guy that injured. Um, God, who did he just injure again? Somebody else just went out on on disability, and they were just like, "Yeah, that was probably the Riddick Moss match." That it, is, is that who who gave Atami like the power slam that, like, he landed right on his shoulder? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. But yeah, yeah. it was just really funny. Where I was just like, "You had a former Vikings player here in his hometown, and he still couldn't get an inch of heat for the life of him." But Hideo Tommy wore a Vikings jersey and figured it out. So it was just comical at the time. How, how many NXT shows have you been to? Um, two. You, you were at the because I went to the San Jose. I went to the yeah. San Jose one, and then I've been at this one, and I think those are the only two I've been to. I went to the Takeover in Brooklyn last year, and the one re- remarkable thing that I felt from I, so I went to Takeover in Brooklyn. I went to SummerSlam and then the Raw after, and I thought it was remarkable just feeling the vibe in the crowd at, at NXT versus the next night at SummerSlam. That I felt that there was, and this, you kind of get this from watching the TV, is that. When, when I was, you know, sitting in the seats for the NXT show, there was – people were just, like, unconscious and totally lucid in their reactions. There was no hesitation and no no doubt that you feel, at least I felt, the next night when you're watching SummerSlam. Like, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to – oh, here comes Jon Stewart or or the, the following night after that at Raw. You know, where I, where I think NXT has built up this goodwill where you trust this, this you know, this company is going to give you – or this brand is going to give you a good show, whereas with – main roster WWE, there's this distrust. I agree. I, I will say a house show, I feel, is different than a, a pay-per-view caliber show, though. And so yeah. there's that element where I was like, I would definitely go see an NXT special taping, no doubt about it. But I don't know whether an NXT house show is going to really be, you know, the caliber, the interest to me. But if yeah. I can go and I can go for under, you know, 100, 150 bucks for me and my two pals, I'll do it. But I'm, I just... I can't spend two hundred and twenty-five dollars on it right now. I just without without caring about the product. <laughs> but that, but that goodwill badwill thing is. I, I wonder how much of a business difference does that make? If and I think that's all related to the quality of the booking. Is that if this was if this company was booked better, the people I I remember like when Nakamura came out or when he was going over on Samoa Joe, when he won the title, and just like people were like stomping in, in their seats. They were just freaking out. At, at a level that nobody nobody did the next night, or at, at a level that I've never seen in, in recent times at, at WWE shows, and I wonder how much money, more money, or how many more fans would, would they get, or how many more tickets would they sell, how many more people would, would would watch the show, how many more people would buy merchandise if they just felt like they could trust this show. I don't know if that's a bubble thing. I, I sit on Twitter all day, and you know, 
like I said earlier, I think we we're looking for some way to to punish WWE. We we want them uh, to to have some sort of punishment for for putting on this bad show. We hope that they're this is a little strong, but we hope that their their TV rights deal will, will be lower and, they, and they'll they'll learn that they're they're on the wrong path here. But I, I wonder how much of a difference. I hope it would make a difference. You know. I mean, I guess that's where I, I'm indifferent towards Roman Reigns in a way that I feel people are very violently against him, where I, I think he's stepped up his performance and stepped up his ability to be a marketable character. Sure. And I, I said Roman Reigns is an excellent performer, but I think the reaction to Roman Reigns is the manifestation of years and years of the fans feeling like this company doesn't care what we think. And so we're going to we see that this guy's the handpicked guy. We're going to boo the shit out of him. And again, you know, I think we've. Was it maybe it was a different show where I said something about hate is the 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 opposite of hate is not love it's indifference and yeah. uh, you know I I go back to that a lot which is just if people I all I want the the idea of theater to me is that you're you're causing a reaction from an audience that you're getting something from them and it can be a boo it can be a cheer it can be a laugh and especially when you're doing comedy or live live performance you want it to be that. But the key to it is that it's in that moment and it only exists for that moment and it's for the people that are there with you. And it's tough when you're doing a television show or a worldwide show because in a way you're you're like they say, you're not playing to the home audience. You're or you're not playing to the audience in front of you, you're playing to this audience that is disconnected through some some impersonal screen. Yeah, and the, the the big audience is right there and they point to the hard cam, yeah. So that's just weird, you know, when you think about it, because it's like it's like taping, you know, it'd kinda of be like if you were taping a uh, reality TV show or taping a a you know something a network television show where you're doing it in front of a a live audience but not like a live studio audience the way uh, Cheers or something was but rather just like you know you get one take and you're done it'd just be such a different world tell yeah, me but... tell me about this little uh, we have our notes here and you have wrestling magazines versus online wrestling media creating star power Mil Mascaris versus Kenny Omega what are you <laughs> thinking tell me about this. What what a match that would be, wouldn't it? Male Maskers versus Kenny Omega. Don't you want to pay to see that? Uh, it's kind of, we, we kind you of know, I bet you Tom McGee and him probably tussled it. No, I can't. I guess they wouldn't. Even Tom McGee would would have been probably the wrong era for Male Maskers to. to is is Kenny Maskers. Omega just just Tom McGee reincarnated? Oh my God, is he ever? Yeah, there's <laughs> there's this crazy. There's a movie called Stone Cold. Uh, you can watch it on Rift Tracks, on um on Amazon Prime. And in the middle of it, there's they go to like a uh a brawling pit where there's just bikers and then a, a big guy in there killing bikers and you you go and you freeze frame it and it, it is kenny omega and then finally when you get to the credits you realize oh my god that's tom mcgee and really oh my wow. god they, they look exactly alike and i'm thousands of people have made this comparison and really? i've never heard tom uh kenny omega meant you know comment on it and i'm sure he gets annoyed so by it all people the time. have already made this analogy this just popped into my mind it's the first i've ever heard of oh it no yeah I'm... <laughs> i've seen it on twitter i've posted about it really? on twitter a bunch oh, other wow. people have yeah yeah Mega Man Tom McGee. I thought I had an original thought. No, no. Though I will say, you know, it might be legendary because Tom McGee uh, did win Worst Match of the Year one year. Um, yeah. For Hiroshi Wajima. Thank you. All, I was going to say. All Japan for wrestling. Exactly. So was it All Japan? Wasn't it World something? Or was it All no, Japan at the time? I'm almost positive it's All Japan. Okay, because then the, the guy went on to do one of those other wacky spinoff feds in the late 2000s. Probably, yeah. Um, but, but yeah. Uh, but one of the worst matches of all time, and of course, Kenny Omega getting his now six and one quarter stars. 
uh, match. So you could argue that the reincarnation of of Kenny o- of uh, Tom McGee is now in fact had not only the most famous dark match in history, but now the uh, the most famous match in history and one of the worst matches of history. So, yeah. so the, the point of this, and this kind of relates, I was, I was cr- passing through my mind as we were talking about Samoa Joe, is that I wonder if. Part of the reason why, if if the Lesnar and, and Joe Angle is really connecting with people, is part of the reason why it is not just because of what they've done with Samoa Joe recently, but because maybe Samoa Joe came into WWE with a decent amount of star power, and you could say the same thing about AJ Styles, who they actually put right on main roster television rather than putting him in NXT first. Um, the, the the point was this came from a question I asked on Twitter after I had a thought that when you look at back in the day when guys like Neil Mascaris would just as far as I know, I obviously wasn't watching wrestling at this time, but when guys like Mil Mascaris would just show up on, on WF television, and I now the, the, the TV would help get them over and introduce them to the crowd in total, but these guys would come in with, with some credibility already because I think there was some of an expectation that fans kind of knew who this guy was because they had seen him in magazines for so long. Maybe Bruiser Brody's kind of like that too. Well, and wasn't there even the guy in Indianapolis or whatever who like tried to base his whole fed around that when he was doing that upstart in the uh... – the late 70s really? yeah yeah the the, okay. the the like cubs owner who just died dave wrote all about him oh, in the observer is this Wrestling usa or something uh i don't remember if it was it was like the predecessor to that i thought it was like one of we're, we're gonna sound like we're such uh historian yeah. uh, uh newbies here by not knowing these we, but yeah, yeah but he tried we, to base his fed around like mil mascaris yeah. because you know he figured he's gonna have this big hispanic draw and he's gonna be this big you know he's a wrestling personality you know he's the guy that that got successfully you know, got New York State to change its mask law. Really? Yeah, yeah. He was a he played a big <laughs> role in that uh, because, of course, as a masked wrestler, you couldn't couldn't appear. Can't be anybody champion either. But but anyway, the point is, I think I mean you, you take a look at wrestling magazines and consider the exposure that that it gave wrestlers at the time when re- magazines were really popular in the seventies or, or the eighties or whatever, and you consider the exposure that online wrestling media gives to wrestlers today. My intuition would be that online wrestling media gives greater exposure than magazine magazines gave to wrestlers a few decades ago. And I asked this question, and I think Semper Vivi and uh, I think maybe Chris Zellner told me that you know you, you're right. Yeah, I think you know magazines are were, were, were strong, but I think the online uh, media is stronger. So like, it, it's just another WWE thing. We're like, no, they have to go through our system first, pal. And but but yeah, they, but think I. Let's go back to some of your Google trends and your familiarity studies. Didn't you find that even with all of that buzz for New Japan, yeah. TNA was still bigger than New Japan? Yeah, and and AJ Styles was AJ Styles' uh, line graph is really low until he gets to WWE, and it's and it gets really big. It's it's almost you know microscopic before he gets to WWE. After all that stuff he did in TNA and New Japan and Ring of Honor. Well, and it's just but, that question to me about Kenny Omega, which would be yes, he's make he's killing it in New Japan. There's no doubt about it. He is an enormous star there. But does that actually translate outside of the wrestling bubble, or does moderate television exposure? in the United States, even at a TNA level, maybe not now, but even, you know, five years ago, equal more but, than New Japan buzz online today. But my point is, if you can make a major star out of Neil Mascaros in the 70s, why, why can't, and, and if magazines aren't even as powerful as the internet is, why can't you make a major star out of Samoa Joe, for example, and, and throw him right on TV and, and make him into a star? I think there's there's this WWE culture that says, well, you, they're, they're not a big star until they get to our TV, and, and as a matter of fact, we're going to take most of them and, and put them in NXT for a year, 
and supposedly teach them how to do an entrance. Well, I think it will totally matter how you match up because you you have a star in Brock Lesnar. You know, he he matters when he's on television still. And so if you pair them up and make them seem like a star, that's going to give them a good rub because Brock Lesnar transcends WWE in a very unique way. And so you have some good buzz there and some good opportunity in a way that a Kevin Owens or Sami Zayn or an AJ Styles or a Nakamura has not been showcased quite as being, you know, that important. Uh, So I I think it's really exciting. I think it's neat. But I agree. Um, It will be interesting to see what this really means. I, I just keep going back to the idea of saying I'm baffled to figure out whether or not what's bigger to be a giant wrestling online superstar out of Japan or to be a superstar that somehow has a ton of U.S. based buzz um, completely, you know, on a irrelevant television show like a Lucha Underground type star. You know, who's bigger, Ricochet coming off of Lucha Underground or um, Kenny Omega coming off New Japan for a U.S. based random person? But probably Kenny. I would think, yeah, I would think Kenny Omega. And and it's, but it might just be. It's hard. It's hard to even say Kenny Omega is not a U.S. based star when you when you got New Japan on Access. Yeah, but who has it? I always feel like Dave's in the bubble on that one, where he he portrays it as if this enormous group of people have access to this channel, and I I can't get it. I don't know lots of people who can't get it. You know, Ring of Honor has every everyone can watch Ring of Honor. Except for in a couple major cities, and yet Ring of Honor gets zero buzz. Nobody knows who Jay Lethal is. Yeah, he, he, Dave has claimed last time. This is like a year and a half ago that I looked at it, but Dave claimed that like a uh, viewership for Ring of Honor is about four hundred thousand, and viewership for New Japan is about two hundred thousand. I think he said that it, the New Japan viewership is up since then. So it, it just makes is. me wonder, just in terms of that, that what does it mean to have two hundred thousand people that like anything? And does that actually translate to a movable thing? Or are we at the era of the hardcore fan of wrestling for WWE so that it translates enormously because, you know, they're coming in with this, such a strong base of people that care about them? Well, what what is the – can you hear my refrigerator? I sure can. That's, that's, that's pretty so special. All right, all right, let's stop everything. So – Every now and then, my, my refrigerator will – it sounds like there's a little man inside my refrigerator with a hammer tapping on a stone or something, and then, oh, it stopped for now. Okay. The show can go on. You, you've, you've angered him. So so let's <laughs> – what, what does AJ Styles tell us that then when well, he debuted? Well, what does Cody Rhodes tell us? So Cody Rhodes now going to face up with um, Okada for the big New Japan show, and Dave Meltzer at least is strongly – hinting if you've been listening to the audio in my book that there's a strong chance that cody might win the title so that they can set up some kind of angle with omega and kind of basically keep okada and omega separated for a long time and then you know have him run an angle with cody or something um did he say that i I listened to the wednesday audio this morning and he said that he said something to the effect of if Cody doesn't win, and it's not a lock that he will, so it sounded like you suggesting that he's not gonna he's not gonna go over on. Okada. He's not sure though, but he 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 leaves it very open because he keeps talking about oh, there's all these great storylines if they do this, and and Cody Cody yeah. does this, and and he wants to give him a good match, and and this and that, and just kind of that. What is your impression of a guy like a Cody Rhodes? Um, you know, could you? Does it matter who is the Ring of Honor champion anymore? Does it matter who is the New Japan champion? Um, there it goes again. Uh, what are your thoughts? Should we, should we stop for edit or should we just keep going? Oh, I think this? it's hilarious. No, they, right. they, they get to hear the beauty <laughs> of your new microphone. Great. 
Sorry, what was the question again? Like, how much does it matter? Who's well, just like, what is, what is your impression of a Cody Rhodes type? Where it's somebody who makes their name completely in WWE, kind of has a flash where they're they're important, you know, through the legacy thing, and then eventually ends up right at the bottom of the card, you know, with Stardust, and then kind of leaves out of frustration, manages it within a year to basically be on the biggest show of TNA, the biggest show of New Japan, and the biggest show of ROH, all within the same year, which was a pretty incredible feat. Um and and now is, you know, posed in position where he's being treated like a legitimate challenger. Do you think he has a new stigma to him where he's Cody Rhodes, you know, destroyer of worlds? Or is he still Cody Rhodes, that guy, Ted DiBiase Jr.'s pal? Online and with the online fans that I hear stuff from, they, he has a stigma of he's he's a decent wrestler, but he's not great. And he's not as good as the other people who could have a similar opportunity. Um, I know he has all these ambitions about Ring of Honor. Yeah, go go book a ten thousand seat arena and we'll we'll sell it out. Um, I don't I don't see that happening not anytime soon. Um, I I just mean he's, I, he's, I'm he's just trying to try to contrast him with the fact that you know we kind of sometimes make it seem like any wrestler can be big, and yet there's lots of guys who have left WWE and done nothing. There's lots of guys who have great talent who have not managed to really hit it big. And Cody right now seems to have figured out how to, you know, navigate the waters well enough that they're, you know, people are throwing a lot at him. Yet I don't feel that he's connecting with that hardcore base of super indie fan in a way. And I agree. So I, 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 to me, it's really interesting where it's like, is this going to lead to a, a, a pushback? Does this, you know, just make Ring of Honor and those feds seem like they're kind of second run because this is the best talent that's out there left for them? Or what does it mean? Kind of like I said before, I think this is kind of a justice thing where, like, people want to see wrestlers and promotions rewarded who the fans feel do outstanding work. And Cody has done good work. So the Rybacks of the world. No, not not Ryback either. The Billy Guns of this world. Not Billy Gunn, who's going to wrestle Hiroshi Tanahashi either. Um, And I think New Japan especially probably sees Cody as, oh, this guy's an American star and we're going to break into america let's let's get him and, and by the way that that list helped and that list was a great marketing idea for himself and, and i don't doubt that he's he's worked really hard oh, he's oh hustled. You, you mean the list of people he wanted to wrestle around the world yeah yeah um and I, and I don't doubt that he's hustled really hard and he's like you said he's gotten himself on tna ring of honor and, and new japan their biggest shows all in the course of a, of a year um but fans don't perceive him as someone who's doing this incredible work he's not one of the the, the top 10 or top 25 wrestlers in the world so why is he getting this you're saying he's not on the dvdvr the dvdvr top, top 500 no oh, no goodness. well he, he probably in the top 500 but not the top 50 and probably not even the top 100 i think um, i've interviewed both dean and phil before so i I, really? I probably can get both of them to confirm or deny whether or not he what exactly his numbers at. i'm going to put him at 138 there is no more top DVD top 500. They don't know, they don't update that anymore, do they? They don't. <laughs> Certainly they don't. Anyway, so but but so the point the, the the smaller point is Cody and Okada, and the bigger problem is I, the bigger mistake. And and I'm not saying necessarily Cody and Okada is is a mistake. And and by the time it happens, Cody Rhodes could be the Ring of Honor champion, and that and that's a big marquee match. You got the Ring of Honor champion versus the IWGB champion. That's you know just that fact. Makes it a, a big match, and what, that's what, fine. What baffled me with that is that Dave seems so flummoxed in trying to come up with a solution to how you book that match. And all I could think is, 
Is there anything that has a longer history than when Japanese promotions book champion versus champion matches with non-finishes? Like, he keeps thinking everyone's going to reject it outright, but I, I not really do a non-finish, are they? No, I don't think you don't think so? Do you don't think it's going to be a, it would be a, a double DQ, a d- double count out, double... No, this know? isn't the 80s anymore. No, you, I think after, after the 80s, I remember the story that sometime in like the early 1990. Um, no, that was all Japan though that went to the no bullshit right, finish. Right, and and when, 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 like when's the last time New Japan's done they done do a non finish? But they do lots of bullshit finishes with uh, they, the Bullet they Club. They do, and but at least there'll be a finish. There'll be a pinfall. And isn't Cody Bullet Club? Yeah, yeah. So, so there could be. I I don't know. I was just seeing it as like you do some crazy brawl outside the ring. You do some crazy table spot. You do something insane of of you know, a, a double count out type thing where you're just brawling and brawling and brawling and you call it a show. And I don't really think people are going to... People will flip. The, the people in that LA venue will flip out if that happens. They need and, Okada, and they, they they need Okada to pin Cody Rhodes to win? They need they need a finish. What about, a, do a, double... what about a count out? If, if, or is it going to be funny because of the, the rules around American rules on count out versus Japanese rules on count out? You mean the 10 versus 20? I meant it, whether the title changes hands. Oh no! I think if they do a count-out finish, if they don't, if that match doesn't end by pinfall or submission, the fans will be very unhappy, and they will damage the the, the future brand, the New Japan brand in the U.S. and any future shows that they want to do in the U.S. Because who's going to want to go to New Japan the next time when they felt burned on that finish? But I feel, I always feel like if you're seeing champion versus champion, you have to know you're getting a non-finish, and I don't feel burned by that. But I guess that's just me. Where oh. People are going to feel burned, man, if, if, if they do a non-finish. Unless it's an hour draw. An hour, I mean, is he going to do another hour draw? No, I no. I, I just feel like it's a prequel to a movie, right? Like, you can't watch a... When you watch a prequel to a movie, how can you be afraid that the characters are in danger? Because you know they have to live. Because you saw them in the next movie. And so, to me, that's what a, a champion versus champion match feels like. Where I'm like, I know that both guys have to go on to their booking tomorrow. So, yeah. you know, I already know the finish here. So I'm okay with that because I already know that walking in. As long as you give me, you know, a gun Tanahashi type match where I can really sink my teeth into it and enjoy the artistry. But it's not like, but it's not like the, the tickets weren't on sale and they advertised champion versus champion, then put tickets on sale. You got already got people bought hey. into the show. <laughs> they, 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 they. They got they sold tickets to the show and then they announced Jay Lethal as the first person on it. So I mean, let's get real here. They they've been uh they've been milking this market for the fact that they can milk this market. They they do what they do doesn't seem to always be connected to having um a plan that's built around having to sell a certain amount of tickets. So it, it's hot. It's cool. It's neat that they're doing it. I you know it it's so great that they've had such a strong reaction to it so i remember when they were doing kind of those like fake new japan shows back in the couple years ago in like new jersey where there was basically you know like half new japan talent but then it would be run by you know border city wrestling or someone else and you know it wasn't doing a lot of numbers so it's amazing now that just because it's not an authentic new japan show i guess so yeah so that's great i I think especially when you when we've got like this show this is like 2000 seat arena or whatever it is and and most of the people who are probably going to be sitting in the seats aren't from the LA area, so these are fans who know what New Japan is, and they want an authentic New Japan show, just like they watch on New Japan World. And if they don't get that, they're going to be disappointed. Do you think and, more neckbeard products should uh, sponsor New Japan? What, what, what kind of what products would, would those include? <laughs> I'm I'm just being an ass. Uh, no, it's fine. Uh, no, I think it, it will be very exciting. Uh, are you going? 
No, no. Are you watching? Is this podcast sponsored by uh, Dollar Shave Club? No, it's not. It's not. not, No, we're we're sponsored by a quarter very rough comb. For a a quarter, you can get a very rough comb. It's uh, available at any drugstore near you. It's made of hard plastic. It's really hard to break. Lasts a long time. Excellent. Are you going to watch the show? I will try to find a way, yeah. I might have to sign up for Sling or something. Or, I don't know, does my does my mom have access? I'll have to ask. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, the, I think the, the I don't have as much of a problem with, with Cody versus Okada, especially if it's champion versus champion, as, as I do with um, Billy Gunn versus Tanahashi. And then I think Joe Lanson made the comment, uh, I think it was him, you never know on, on the Voice of Wrestling Twitter, but that, you know, Billy Gunn, who's in the World Tag League uh, in November, like th- that was a fun little thing to do. And here here's a different guy, and that's cool. But to, but to take Billy Gunn and put him up against Hiroshi Tanahashi, which is a match that you would never book in Japan. And if, if people want an authentic New Japan wrestling experience. I don't know. That sounds straight out of mid-2000s New Japan when they would book Robbie Rage versus some you know somebody in a, a singles match. And they had sure. lots of crazy-ass singles. But it doesn't sound like today's sure. New Japan. It doesn't I sound like Ghetto. That. Doesn't sound like Ghetto's booking. I agree with that. I, I, I think it's silly. I, I think it's silly because again, I, do I love seeing Haku come out during the Battle Royal? And yes. you know, once a year, that's awesome. Like that's exciting. Yeah. Do I love seeing uh, Fujinami do you know something once a year? Sure. But do I want to see Billy Gunn in a singles match in the U.S.? I would not fly across the country for that. You know, I could even see PWG wanting to do a comedy match with Billy Gunn, but I don't see him. You know, trying to. Trying to pass it off as a legitimate match here. It's going to be very interesting to see uh, what what can come of it. And I'm sure Billy Gunn's going to be super motivated to do everything yeah. he can and and apply those powerlifting skills that he's been uh, uh creating up for to there something go. good. Yeah. But uh. Yeah. Hey, man, they just brought back Scott Norton, right? So I mean, they they are bringing back they, some of these guys sometimes. Yeah, he was in the he was in the Rambo, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would. I would rather see Scott Norton versus Tanahashi, to be honest. I think I think <laughs> I think people would get really happy because I think that's the key is if if you're going to give us an American, give us an American who has a great history in Japan. You know, yeah. give us somebody who uh, uh, I don't care if it's um, Ladybeard, I don't care if it's um, Human Balloon or what was it? Uh, I'm I'm trying to think of uh, a, a you don't know these guys I'm mentioning here. See, I'm, no, I'm is, just... this, is this indie? Is this indie sleaze? Yeah, these are indie sleaze okay. wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. Bring back um, oh god, Yoshihiko. Oh, I'm, I'm, but I'm, th- I'm trying to think of Gan- Gaijin who are over there. They have to be know. from other countries, but working in Japan, primarily. Um, but yeah, indie sleaze could afford to fly people over. No, no. What what happens is is you know like there's one guy on the observer board who works there, and uh, he was saying he he like has a job in Japan. I think teaching English. And then he kind of approached some of the wrestling feds and yeah. was able to get in and, and maybe even are, had a background. Most of them, it sounds like they live in Japan already doing stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or they, or I they have heard of, there with the I have heard of Indy Slee's like booking guys, you know, because way back in the day, you know, um, when the, the hardcore wrestling was super hot, you would have, you know, lots of guys, you know, Zandig and all his guys came over. CCW was over for years and... The Gilberts, of course, used to come over, and there's lots of random people who have done tours of Japan, and uh, even even indie guys, I've heard of getting you know 
guys like Cage from upstate New York, if you know him. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I remember him getting, like, some offer. But, again, most of the time they don't really work out because really? they never give you, like, a working visa. <laughs> it's, so it's, like a, it's like a bodybuilder now. He's, like, super cut up if you, if you look at his Instagram. Have you seen that? I have not. I I, I don't keep He's open to my – super camera. cut, man. You Cage, know how thick and big he was. My only, my only Cage story is uh, when uh, he showed up to a show one time and he had, like, no car door. And he explained, like, on the way to the show, like – he was backing out of his driveway and the car door was open and got like ripped off. And so he decided to like drive all the way to the show, like holding the door on there. And of course I'm trying to think whether this was the match he had with Buff Bagwell. Um, I think I was there for, I think it was on that show. (laughs) No one knows what we're talking about. (laughs) They called me spooky Mookie on that show. Buff Bagwell cut a promo on me. I I worked the Olsons on uh, one of those shows. But anyway, this is our history. Um, this is when the show goes downhill or uphill or, or sideways. I can't tell which. No one's listening at this. We're past the two-hour mark, probably. Well, your refrigerator <laughs> ran them off, as it often does. Yeah. Um, Dominion Ascendance was good. Do you want to bother to talk about that? Well, tell me what there is to know about that. Mm. So when you, we, we have attendance numbers from New Japan. If you go on the New Japan website, and uh, this is pointed out to me by – there's a, a Evan Deadly Sins W on Twitter if you want to follow him. He, he had – does a lot of good business coverage for Japanese wrestling, and we, uh, he we, pointed out to me, we should yep. interview him on one of our non-biweekly Wrestlemania we, shows. We should. He's on the short list. Um, so New Japan after February 29th, 2015, Kadani says these are all legit numbers, whereas before that they were enhanced, probably. So, <laughs> but he's have, being very. They are an HGH. Very, yeah, and uh, uh, clomiphene. After afterwards, um, so so this is so they just ran Osaka Joe Hall for this Dominion show, big probably second biggest show of the year. Um, and in 2005, this show drew about 11,400, which is odd because that's a round number, and this is after the point where it's supposed to be a legit number. But anyway, so that that's that's a show with Okada versus AJ Styles and Goto versus Nakamura, 11,400. The next year, same building, 9,925 with Okada, Naito, Omega, and Michael Elgin. And then this past Sunday, I think I think it's technically Sunday, um, eleven thousand seven hundred fifty-six. So they they did their apparently their biggest attendance yet of the numbers that we know are legit um, within recent years. For the of course the main event of Kenny Omega and Kazuchika Okada going one hour and Tanahashi and Naito, both rematches from Wrestle Kingdom. So when we look at uh, attendance from from this data by month, it looks like two thousand seventeen in every month right in terms of total attendance at least is doing better than the last year or or 2015 for for the uh, for the months that we have 2015 available um and and for most months the average attendance is higher as well slightly but japan's doing well august explodes is that because of g1 it has to be okay that's the only thing that happens in august yeah so that will be that'll be interesting too with the announcements of of who they're going to bring into g1 this year and uh you know, you just even mentioning Elgin makes me think, you know, I would rather watch Elgin in the Billy Gunn spot because while Elgin's not, you know, a huge export, it's exciting because he's he's something different and at least he's in his prime. Yeah, well, it's, it's Tanahashi's tag partner, tag team partner is an explode. What, what do you call that? Parais and Crabless. There you go. <laughs> um, but no, Speaking that's... of Lucha, did, did you watch Los Ninjas Tortugas? I did watch some. I did not watch all of Los, Los Angeles Tartugas. <laughs> I was complaining about the lack of, of uh, was it Turtles in wrestling? Was that my concern? Mm-hmm. 
the lack of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles specifically, I think. I think it was Turtles in general, but yes, oh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Too. Yeah, uh, but yes, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of of any time we have crazy gimmicks like that. And hey, I love, I love the fact that Mexico keeps it all alive. And as many people pointed out to me, it was one of the turtles who uh, got in the big fight with ADR uh, and over Page, and that's right, and it caused was. all that. So you know, the turtles, turtles are hot still, even in this day and age. Much like uh, drone racing is hot even still in this. Age where WWE is throwing some money into the drone racing ring. Um, yeah, <laughs> one of those that you know maybe you know maybe this is like the most advanced analytics that they've ever done. Where we talk about all these customer analytics and they figured out that like the drone racing community and the WWE community have like this ten thousand index versus anything else, and and the the people that enjoy one love the other, and this will have a huge impact on them. Or perhaps. Or more or not, likely, or uh, if we go and trace—I I bet you anything—if we trace down the board members and look at which companies they have and they own, yeah. and they're nine times out. I mean, the last one that happened like this um, was the Marvel Ventures, where is this like touring kind of ice capades type show with Marvel people, and people are like, "What are they doing? What are they doing?" It was Basil Devito, who's longtime WWE advisor, business advisor, former employee. Yeah. He was the guy like running half of He's this. He's still. Basil DeVito still has a position in the company. He's still advisor it. to the board, and he is finally retiring this year. I think he, oh. he finally is stepping down from his position, and uh, yeah, he wow. he goes way 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 back. But yeah, he was he was always my pick for if Vince McMahon died in yeah. a sudden heart attack, who would take over? And I always said Basil DeVito, and no one else mm. believed me. But um, yeah, it it just getting you know all over the place. You have a question here. Uh, it's a Barrios yeah. question, so I have that to... That kind of relates to what you just said in terms of... He said, is Vince I, delegating more to Barrios since the launch of the network? Yeah, because... Well, okay, so let me if I can explain. So, like, I feel when we hear hear the conference calls and... Well, okay, when we hear the conference calls and, you know, Barrios does most of the talking, maybe you can tell me, has it always been this way? Um, or has Vince done more of the talking in the past? And and when someone will try to ask a question to Vince or when Vince will, will just, you know speak on the Q&A in general, um, he will often just reference what, what George said, which maybe I'm overthinking that, but just the fact that we always see George Barrios as the one who's doing the presentations at various conferences. And is, is that normal for a company? And why why isn't it the CEO? And maybe is it, is it the fact that all this new media stuff that all this, you know, this new media world that WE is trying to enter, maybe a lot of that's been delegated to, to George Barrios and Michelle Wilson while, while Vince just, you know, fixates on, on, you know, micromanaging creative. Do you sense that at all, or am I just out of my mind? I would say the only reason they're doing investors conferences is because George Berrios wants to do investors conferences. This is the projection of his ego more than it's a projection of the company saying, hey, let's get out there and do this. So this, this is not something that happened before Berrios was part of the company? I don't recall a lot of it. I mean, Berrios joined the company in either 2008 or 2007, I want to say. And so I don't I don't recall a lot of these before then. I mean, he did. Uh, L- Laura Martin makes a reference to talking to Linda back in the day, and so it's possible that you know Linda did a few of these conferences back in the day, um, especially being a woman when she was you know the the president of WWE, and so she could go to some of these like women in in business type meetings, which has been a passion of hers, obviously, because when she left WWE, that's what she founded a company to work on and and concentrate on, but. 
Um, I think a lot of it is George finding these venues and really trying to make this uh, put WWE's name out there as a new media company. And when you look at kind of the the pedigree of George, this is, you know, kind of part of his vision of what he wants to be branded towards and what he's obviously passionate about. Um, Historically, WWE did often have either the investment relations person or the CFO speak on a lot of these calls if if Vince trusted them. Michelle used to speak a lot more. um, Michelle Wilson. As I I recall, yeah, she used to be on a lot more of these calls than she is now. Um, Linda, when she was president, would be on some of them. But, I mean, I can remember the one call where people started asking her questions about her thoughts on the the tag team ranks in crime time. And (laughs) a little bit after that, she stopped wanting to uh, be on these calls with uh, when they were letting E-Trade people come on (laughs) and speak. It was like a scottstrade.com or something. Um, So So do you think there's anything to... But what I'm getting to is... Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 